right, that's Bully here on X-Ray FM with Days Move Slow. You are listening to KXRY Portland. It's 107.1 and 91.1 FM in Portland, Oregon. 91.7 FM on the coast. That's Nahalem, Wheeler, Manzanita, Rockaway Beach. Online and on demand at xray.fm. I want to say a big thank you again to Andre Middleton of Friends of Noise for joining us to talk about their work. Uh, a lot of great nonprofits here in, in the city doing doing really vital work to help improve uh, the this beautiful town that we live in. And just a thank you to all of them, uh, especially for joining up for the X-Ray Give Guide PSA campaign. It's really great to be able to tune in and hear all of those uh, amazing PSAs and hear just a little bit more about the work being done. You heard a couple of them here this morning. Stay tuned. Tom Hartman's coming up in just about five minutes. Um, after that, we've got Democracy Now! And then, of course, Blazer's Edge returns at 1 p.m. to talk about basketball before we get into the music programming for the day kicking it off with flying saucer safari at 2 p.m they've always got a local band in chatting about what is going on hey until then we're going to listen to just a little bit more music i'll be back tomorrow street roots is going to be on uh we'll hear we'll hear some more new music it'll be a fun day a great way to kick off your day here on x-ray fm this is spoon with the hardest cut off of their release from 2022.
is the Tom Hartman program. Hey, hey, happy Tuesday. The Republican Party has declared war on their new mortal enemy, Zoomers. Honest to God, I'm not making this up. The GOP has, de has decided that Generation Z has to go, or at least go away from the voting booths, and I'll tell you all about that in a, in a few moments. Uh, we got a lot to cover today. Uh, is Liz Cheney going to be the one who saves the Republican Party, or is she going to start a new party? Who knows? Also, in the second hour of our program, our buddy Dean Obidala is going to drop by. The real reason Trump wants to repeal Obamacare. This is our, our one guest for the day. Uh, and our crazy alert, the, the GOP is reaching a crazy state of desperation around the Biden impeachment. But Fox News continues to lie about it. James Comer's latest story, I guess, is what you'd call it, because he, he appears to have made it up out of whole cloth, um, is, you know, going viral all over the right wing, but it's based on BS. I'll tell you about that in, in the second hour, maybe the third hour. Um, in the third hour of our program, we're number one now, officially, in the world. In fact, this year, we're number one for the United States, and the United States has been number one for the world for the better part of 40 years, and that is in mass shootings. I'll tell you about that in the third hour. And also, remember the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act back in 2021 and, and how it was, uh, how they had allocated $7.5 billion for electric vehicle charging stations? Have you seen any? At least, you know, ones that were funded by government money? I haven't, and neither has anybody else. The number that had been built right now is zero. And the Republicans are trying to zero out the plan, the program. I'll tell you all about that in the third hour of the program. So we've got a lot to cover here and a lot to talk about. And, of course, your calls throughout the day on whatever's on your mind these days. But I want to start with the, uh, the Republican Party having declared war on their new mortal enemy, the Zoomers. Uh, Zoomers, you know, Gen Z, basically, you know, people... I don't know exactly the cutoff, but people under 30, certainly probably under 25 or 28. And I mean, it's no secret that for years, Republicans have targeted black voters and Hispanic voters. I mean, back in 1960, in the 1960 election, William Rehnquist was a, a shot, hot shot lawyer in Arizona in Phoenix, and uh, he, he signed up for Operation Eagle Eye. In fact, I think he may have played a role in starting it. Um, you know, back then there were no ID requirements to vote, but if you were challenged at a polling place, you, at the discretion of the, the polling clerks, you could be sent home to get your ID. And this is exactly what Rehnquist did. He stood in polling places that had large black, Hispanic, or in particular for him and Arizona at the time, Native American populations. And he was a big bear of a guy, you know, 6'2", a couple hundred pounds. 
Um, and he would, and he was a lawyer, of course. He became the Supreme Court Chief Justice. He was, you know, basically the guy who gave George Bush the uh, the White House in 2000. And uh, and Rehnquist, uh, you know, used to challenge these people. Well, now the Republican Party has decided, yeah, we're going to continue the war on black voters and Hispanic voters. And by the way, the war on female voters. The reason why, anecdotally, if, if, or as a side note here, the reason why so many red states, you don't find this in very many blue states, but red state after red state after red state has come up with laws that say that when you show up to vote, you have to, and not when you register. It used to be, you know, starting in 1993, actually, the Motor Voter Act said that when you register to vote, you have to prove your, your residency and, you know, and your identity and all that kind of stuff. But it wasn't until 2016 that the first state, Indiana at that time, required voter ID to vote. This is brand new stuff. I mean, 2016 was, what, just 12, 13, 14 years? I, don't, I, I can't do math in my head that fast, I'm sorry, but you, you get the point. It wasn't long ago. And, uh, but here we go, you know, off to the races. But why, why do they require people when they show up to vote to not only bring ID, like a driver's license or a, a, a passport, but also proof of birth in the United States, and the names have to be the same. They want to see your birth certificate in several of these red states now. Why is that? Because women who get married and take their husband's names, more often than not, don't go through the process of legally changing their names. They just kind of do it. Uh, you know, it's probably, uh, probably there are more legal name changes nowadays than there were you know, 40, 50 years ago, I know 51 years ago when Louise and I got married, she never, to the best of my knowledge, legally changed her name. Um, but the reason why Republicans want you to have both your birth certificate and your driver's license is because married women who tend to vote, particularly married women who are of reproductive age, who tend to vote heavily Democratic, particularly now with the abortion issue, have, you know, don't have doc, don't have a birth certificate that matches their driver's license. They're different names. But anyhow, that's, you know, black people, Hispanic people, and women, the, they have been on the, on the radar screen of the GOP for decades. But now they got a new one. Abi Rahman, who is the, uh, the Democratic Leadership Council's uh, National Communications Director, he told Rolling Stone magazine, and I quote, young people are the reason why Biden won in 2020 and Democrats up and down the ballot won in 2022 and 2023. If Gen Z continues to vote, we're on the cusp of the most progressive era in our country's history. Republicans know this as well, and that's why they're doing everything they can to stop young people from voting. Surprise, surprise, right? So do you think they're going to get away with it? Are you know, I, I posted this over at Daily Kos this morning, and the first person who responded said, I know some Gen Zers, some Zoomers, and they are seriously pissed off about this, and they are going to push to vote. Well, good luck. I mean, you know, there's also the problem that the, the GOP is purging votes. I'll get to that in a moment. But, uh, you know, I was saying you could, you could call this 21st century Jim Crow, and, and you know, uh, uh, Joe Madison's famous uh, saying about James Crow ESQ, um, but this is uh, really James Crow PhD because now they're using computers and they've turned voter suppression into a science uh, the Republican Party has. 
Every other November, we're treated to these long lines of people uh, waiting to vote, right? Six, eight, nine hour lines in some cases. Do those lines ever happen in, in white suburbs? Nope, never seen one. I've been voting in white suburbs uh, and, and a white part of DC, my, you know, when I lived there, my whole entire life and small town America. We lived in a small town in, uh, in New Hampshire, Romney, New Hampshire, a small town in Plymouth, New Hampshire, a small town in Vermont, you know, Montpelier. I've never had to wait more than 15 minutes to vote ever in my life. We lived in the northern Atlanta suburbs too, in um, you know Marietta, Alpharetta, uh, or excuse me, Roswell. Never had to wait to vote, but in those areas where there are high concentrations of working-class blue-collar workers and poor people, low-income workers, who pretty much across the board are paid by the hour, the Republican strategy is to make it expensive for them to vote. If you have to wait in line for six hours, that's six hours of pay that you don't get, right? And so, you know, every year we see these long lines on TV. And what's so weird about it, from my point of view, and again, curious if you share this, is that these, these long lines are like celebrated by the media. Look at how enthusiastic these voters are. In, in, you know, in, in, in Fulton County, Georgia, look at this, how many people show? I mean, they, they, they could have accommodated that number of people. They didn't have to have a half mile long line, excuse me. Why did they do it? To discourage voters. It's just that simple. And now they're adding a special twist, a new and heavy emphasis on preventing Zoomers from voting. And, uh, you know, this is pretty straightforward stuff. They're, 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 they're laying it right out. Um, hang on just a second. I've got the, uh, where, where did it go? Here we go. Republicans in New Hampshire push legislation that would prohibit students paying out-of-state tuition from voting in that state at all. Even if you've been living at, uh, say, Dartmouth, you know, in New Hampshire for the, for the last four years going to college, it's still, you know, if you're paying out-of-state tuition, because when you first came to, came to school, you lived in another state. Um, the Republicans' message is get on a plane and fly home if you want to vote. By the way, in the first week of November, while classes are in session. In Texas, Republicans tried to ban all polling places from college and university campuses. And in the Voting Rights Lab notes that laws making it harder to, or even illegal, to use student ID to vote have been introduced by Republicans in at least 15 states so far this year. Now, none of these three things that I just laid out for you have actually passed in their first attempts, but they're trying over and over and over again, and more and more states are trying this, and they're, they're gonna get there. They're gonna get there. And really, the big ones started in 2018. In 2018, five corrupt Republicans on the U.S. Supreme Court, at that time there were five, now there's six, but five corrupt Republicans in the pocket of the billionaires on the U.S. Supreme Court in a, in a case, a 2018 case titled Husted versus Philip Randolph Institute. Husted is the uh, Secretary of State for the state of Ohio. He was purging black voters in Cincinnati and Columbus and, and uh, you know, major Ohio cities. Like, there was no tomorrow. And uh, uh, several voting rights groups, and as I recall, the NAACP, I, uh, um, the, the ACLU, I, I'd have to go back and look exactly who it was, but there were several of these, you know, high-profile organizations that sued and took it to the Supreme Court. And five Republicans on the court in a five to four decision said, it's just fine if he wants to purge people from the voting rolls. Just fine. No problem. 
Stephen Justice Breyer pointed out that only around 4% of Americans move out of their county every year. The, re, the, the rationale that the Republicans that Husted and Mike DeWine were using in Ohio was that although these people all moved. So Stephen Breyer in his dissent in this decision points out, the record shows that in presidential election year 2012, Ohio identified about 1.5 million registered voters, nearly 20% of its 8 million registered voters as ineligible to remain on the federal voter roll because they said that they had changed their residence. The Brennan Center notes, Almost 4 million more names were purged from the rolls between 2014 and 2016, just after the Supreme Court legalized large-scale, no-oversight voter purges in 2013. And then between 2006 and 2018, this growth in the number of removed voters represented an increase of 33%, far outstripping growth in both total registered voters and total population. They're coming for you, Zoomers. And, you know, the job that we've got now is to tell the Zoomers, you know, hey, this is how the game plays. You need to register to vote, of course, and you need to bring all, you know, piles of ID. If you live in a red, in a blue state, in a, excuse me, in a red state, in a blue city, in a red state, or in a college town in a red state, get ready, Zoomers, because they are coming for you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's going to work. I have some doubts, but I'm also very concerned. We'll be right back. 18 minutes past the hour. And welcome back. Cliff in Santa Clarita, California. Hey, Cliff, what's on your mind today? Despite the Rachel show last night, Dick Cheney's still a war criminal. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Anyways, a couple weeks ago, I heard an interview with a friend of yours, Medea Benjamin. And during the conversation, the, the subject of the military-industrial complex came up, you know, the war machine. And that's when I found out that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin came from the board of Raytheon you know, the revolving door. Right. And, and I imagine there's there's others in the administration as well. That's so absolutely routine, Cliff. I'm not, I, I'm not justifying it or, or saying it's fine with me. I'm horrified by it, but it's absolutely routine. Of course. Anyways, um, so the more bombs and rockets that get used in war, the more money these fat cats make. You know, it, yeah. the, 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 it's just There's, it's a, there's a bigger concern damage. than just that, though, Cliff. And, and, it, and it plays into exactly what you're identifying. And that is that... 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when Reagan came into office, before in 1983 when he stopped the enforcement of the Antitrust Act, there were literally hundreds of, of individual companies that were defense contractors. And they competed with each other, which kept prices down and kept innovation up. Now you've got basically six major defense contractors that have absorbed literally hundreds of companies over the past 30 or yeah. 40 years. And they have no competition. You know, they, they, they act as a cartel, and that's even worse. It's just this monopolistic, uh, um, just like all the other industries, it's just they get consolidate, and they, they grab up all the other small ones. Yep, yep. So it, anyways, um, you know, two words that go together that are grotesque or war profiteering, but I came up with a couple words that go together, and that's homeless orphans. Like, they, they, their houses are destroyed, their parents are dead. What kind of lives... Do these children have to look forward to? I, mean, I could add. Are I you talking about in that. in Ukraine and Gaza? It, well, mostly in in Gaza. You know, in the Middle East, what's going on? Well, there's been more 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 
parents killed in Ukraine now than in Gaza, but, but I, I get your point. Well, that's, that's disturbing. Uh, lastly, Tom, you and I are both animal lovers, and I've never heard it mentioned on any report about all the pets that have been killed over there. And if you're a, if you're a little yeah. orphan girl or boy, that's all you have to live for, man, is to have your, you know, your dog or cat or turtle or whatever. And it's just, I don't know. You, you, you know, you're more knowledgeable than me. You can elaborate, but you get what I'm saying. I think Americans, Cliff, because we haven't had a war on our soil since 1860, and that was not a, you know, a foreign invasion. I mean, the last foreign invasion was the War of 1812. Um, that because we've never actually experienced, or at least for generations, have never actually experienced war on our, on our soil, the only people who really have an understanding of war are those who you know, enlisted and went off, off overseas to fight those wars, and many of them came back just horribly scarred, as we see with homeless Vietnam vets and Gulf War vets and all these kinds of things. But the average, the average American voter and young people and and you know and women who didn't get drafted um i i just don't think have a genuine understanding of how horrible war is of the the, the just the genuine horror of it and we look away and we don't show the real you know the real pictures and i think we need to I, it's just you know we have a an empathy deficit here in in some ways cliff i gotta run I but thank you for the call and, and thanks for your points all, they're all very well made uh, it's 22 minutes past the hour. Is Liz Cheney going to be the one who saves the GOP? <laughs> we'll be right back. Change starts with you. You can be calling your Democratic or Republican representatives to let them know what you think by calling 202-224-3121. It's the Capitol switchboard. It'll get you right through to them. So Vivek Ramaswamy, during the uh, first Republican debate, was laying out his vision for America. In, and by the way, he was the number two guy in the debate, according to the Washington Post, in which he was arguing that we should basically do away with all of our federal agencies. Really, uh, virtually all of them. Just, just shut them down and make them go away. Uh, he's not the first person to argue this. David Koch, running on the uh, Libertarian ticket in 1980 for vice president, was arguing the same thing. He had a long list of federal agencies he wanted to shut down. This is not an uncommon thing among billionaires, and Ramaswamy is a billionaire. Uh, you know, they basically want to take America back to the 1920s, had what they call the welfare state. And if they do so, they will turn America into a failed state. They want to make America into, into something like Haiti or Libya. And that would be a disaster. There's a whole article about it that you can read all the details. It's titled, Is Vivek Ramaswamy a Different Kind of Republican Cat? At HartmanReport.com. Check it out. So Liz Cheney, uh, yesterday somebody called and said, hey, you know, Liz Cheney's got a new book out, and what do, you, what do you know about it? What do you think about it? My response was, you know, let's wait 24 hours because the book officially drops on Tuesday, which is today. And, uh, you know, she's going to be doing the, the, the major shows, the A-list shows, you know, Monday night and, and today and tomorrow. And, well, throughout this week, she's going to be doing all kinds of media availabilities. And sure enough, uh, she spent uh, most of the hour last night with Rachel Maddow on, on her show. And uh, this morning she was on Joe Scarborough's show with Joe and Mika. Um, and uh, she, she writes that 
and this is her book is called Oath and Honor, a memoir and a warning. And you know, let me preface this by saying her father is still a war criminal, and she still supports that kind of thing. Um, but that said, she also believes in American democracy. She believes that if her side loses, then you know they need to they need to step back and refine their message, or you know, suppress some more votes or something. But but she's not she's not a Trumpy. And anyhow, she writes that uh, Trump supporters were, quote, completely unaware of what actually happened. And we're talking about January 6th and, you know, Trump's efforts to steal the election. Uh, she notes that there was a previously unreported and unreleased Republican Party memo that concluded, quote, President, this is from the memo by the lawyer for the GOP, that, quote, President Trump's conduct was a serious act, political in nature, that corrupted our subverted or subverted the political process and threatened the order of our political society. And then uh, when McCarthy went down to Florida because Trump wasn't eating, which we all know was BS, McCarthy went down there to kiss his royal behind. Um, there was another memo. This came from McCarthy's chief counsel, the head lawyer to the head Republican. McCarthy was Speaker of the House at the time, um, uh, McCallie Carr. And Cheney said, quote, she had made clear to now Speaker Mike Johnson that his letter, see, Mike Johnson was trying to organize Republicans to vote to refuse to certify Joe Biden and keep Donald Trump in the White House. I, I, yeah, I get it. It's criminal activity, but that was Mike, Mike Johnson was all up to. And the lawyer said this is criminal activity. The lawyer for the, for the Republicans, for, for Kevin McCarthy and the Speaker of the House said, quote, um, in this letter, uh, the effort he was putting together to get Republicans to support the 2020 election overthrow was, quote, wrong and that he knew it was Johnson and McCarthy. She also sent a letter to Johnson himself. He knows he is wrong on the fundamental constitutional principle and his argument that he has some sort of power to individually determine that a state didn't meet their constitutional obligation, blah de blah, blah is astonishing. That's how bad it is. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. Meanwhile, Liz Cheney is thinking of running for president on a third-party ticket. What's that going to do? And is it going to happen? I'll tell you about that after the break, and I'll pick up your calls. Club, we're re reading from Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion by Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove with a foreword by the Reverend William Barber uh, II. This is from page 61. Um, it's the chapter is Living in Skin and the subtitle is American Slavery and the P Problem of Bodies. America's original sin of race-based slavery is rooted in our bodies. While most of us will do what we can to save our own skin, our bodies bear the curse of human rebellion, the sweat of the brow, and the pains of labor. The sins of our fathers and mothers bear down on bent backs and sciatic nerves. Slavery has always been one means humans employ to skirt this curse. To the victor belong the spoils is an ancient truism of war. Often in human history, the spoils include people, but war is not the only way some bodies become subject to others. In the opening lines of the Exodus story, the Bible says, quote, a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt, end quote. 
and the messiness of politics favor comes and goes. But the people who are in power almost always make sure someone else carries the weight and does the dirty work. The unique contribution of slavery during the establishment of the American colonies was the employment of skin color to assign a class of people to perpetual servitude. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Originally, white and black people came to the colonies as servants of the settler class, but race-based slavery emerged as an efficient means of building up the plantation economy by permanently assigning people of African descent to the status of slave. Africans who survived the long journey across the Atlantic Ocean often chained to one another and packed prostrate in the hold of a ship became human chattel in the New World. In explicit contrast to the enslavable black flesh of Africans, people of European descent began to imagine themselves as white. By virtue of their whiteness, and for no other reason, they imagined a divine right to own black bodies. For the people whose saleable skin re rendered them subject to use and abuse, this arrangement was obviously anathema. Quote, and before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free, end quote, they sang when white folks weren't listening. Tactics of resistance varied, but people of African descent always knew in their bodies the basic heresy of race-based slavery. And in their bodies, white people knew it too. To comprehend the moral contradiction of America's original sin, you must consider what it meant for a young white man to come of age on a plantation. Imagine yourself growing up amid a pastoral landscape in the early 19th century, a half day's horse ride from the closest city. As for any child, your world is the your world is the people you've known and the places familiar to you since birth. The big house, which you've always called home, and the barn where your daddy tied a rope swing from the rafters so you could fly down from the loft and land safely in that mound of hay by the horse stalls. For as long as you can remember, you've always had your studies and your chores to do. Mother always insisted that you learn responsibility, but you always felt closer to Betsy, the enslaved black woman who changed your diapers and cooked your food and picked you up when you fell and skinned your knees. You never remember running down to the barn to play without Betsy's two boys, and Imogen, the girl between them, the one that was born just three months after you. For you, a son of so-called privilege, puberty means beginning to make sense of why you kissed Imogen down in the hay pile when you were six, and why you both always knew you could never tell a soul. It means coming to terms with the fact that you and Imogen both share your father's no nose, and it means beginning to internalize an arrangement in which you will one day inherit as property the woman who both complete, competed with your mother for your father's love and nursed you at, at her breast. If you were a good Episcopalian, as most plantation families were, this is also about the time you would be confirmed as a living member of the body of Jesus Christ. The Southern writer Lillian Smith wrote a century after slavery's end, now at one's feet there are chasms that had been, that had been invisible until this moment. Describing an experience shared in silence by generations of white Christians, she observed how Quote, one knows and never remembers how it was learned, but there will always be chasms, and now across the chasms will always be those one loves, end quote. To observe that race-based ch chattel slavery was a gut-wrenching experience that white people also experienced in their bodies is not in any way to equate their suffering with that of African Americans. It is instead to try to understand the lived experience that informs the ways they read the Bible and imagined their world. Because even though slavery ended in 1865 in the United States, most white Christians went on reading the Bible and seeing the world around them exactly as they had before. Growing up Southern Baptist in North Carolina, I memorized scripture in the King James Version and engaged in a serious program of discipleship as a white adolescent without ever giving serious consideration to the Southern 
in our denomination's name. Then in 1995, the summer before my freshman year of high school, the Southern Baptist Convention issued an official apology for its endorsement of slavery. There it was. We'd separated ourselves from our American Baptist sisters and brothers some 150 years earlier in order to say, stay Southern and keep our slaves. Enough water had passed under the bridge for our elders to decide it was time to bury the hatchet. They said they were sorry. But their concession stirred up old fears. Before I'd finished high school, a conservative movement within the denomination insisted we had become too liberal, took over the denomination, and forced everyone who worked for the International Mission Board to sign a statement of faith to which they added an article about female submission. It was the first time in my life I'd seen people on the local evening news being interviewed about my church. The book, Reconstructing the Gospel. Did you know that every weekday we send out an email before the show giving you all the topics coming up so you could be fully informed and ready to interact with our program? Or that after the show we send out Sue's Stack, a list of every topic I've discussed along with clickable hot links to every source of information I've shared with you on the air? It's all completely free and available over at tom.tv, T-H-O-M.tv. Check it out. So this is interesting. Uh, Moff Reston over at the Washington Post is writing that uh, Liz Cheney is thinking of running for president. I'm not surprised. I mean, there was talk about this back when she was on the January 6th committee, particularly when it became clear that the uh, Republicans at her party were going to put their love, loyalty, and fealty to uh, uh, Donald Trump above their commitment to the Constitution or the rule of law. But... Uh, Here's what she said in a Monday interview with the Washington Post. This was yesterday. Uh, she said, several years ago, I would not have contemplated a third party run, but I happen to think democracy is at risk at home, obviously, as a result of Donald Trump's continued grip on the Republican Party. And I think the excuse me, and I think democracy is at risk internationally as well. She said she's going to make her up her mind over the next few months when she was asked, you know, do you think that your candidacy would pull votes away from Biden as opposed to pulling votes away from Trump? She said, you know, we will look into that. We don't want to do anything that's going to help. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. We don't want to do anything that will help Donald Trump get elected, obviously. But, uh, you know, this is interesting. I, you know, on the, on the Democratic side, you've got people trying to, you know, Dean Phillips and, and um Bobby Kennedy uh, trying to pull votes away from from Joe Biden and uh, you know as well as uh, Chenk Uger and Marianne Williamson uh, they're not so much trying to pull votes away from Biden they're just you know trying to make a, a statement in the in the primary and you know God bless them we should all be entitled to but um, this this I think has the potential to be f absolutely fascinating I mean she is Republican royalty or at least her family is I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm no fan of them, but you get what I'm saying here. All right, let's pick up your calls and see what's on your mind today. Uh, Nicholas in San Cristobal, Mexico. Hey, Nicholas, what's on your mind today? What's up? Tom, how are you doing? Good. Um, very quickly, Cheney running for third party. Yes, yay, do it. Split the votes. Yeah. We need only a few percentage points to win. Yeah. So I'm all for that, although I'm certainly what I'm, not. What I'm wondering maybe. is if the nominee isn't Trump, what if the nominee is, for example, Nikki Haley, whose policies yeah. are not that different from Trump and who has uh, essentially right. said that she's going to go, you know, with the Heritage Foundation's right. Project 2025, which means, you know, fascism exactly. in the United States, at least in my humble opinion. 
Um, will Liz Cheney yeah. be as reactive to another Republican as she is to Trump? I'm suspecting the answer is no. I don't know. But it's we'll so see. hard to know. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, my real call is one to thank you personally for having been the one to remind me about Arundhati Roy. You read sometimes from her terrific uh, Capitalism, a ghost story. Mm -hmm. And I had read, of course, The God of Small Things and fell you know, in love with her writing way back when. But I'd forgotten all about her. You reminded me. I bought recently the uh, collected essays of hers that go into the title of My Seditious Heart, which I assume you have. And if not, oh, my God, you better get it. And everybody. <laughs> yeah, she's brilliant. Oh, my God. She really is brilliant. She will say, is she, oh, is she still so writing? Brilliant. Is she still around? It's been, it's been a few years oh, since yeah, I've read any of her stuff. Oh, yeah, very much so. Okay, yeah, she was just charged in India with being uh, everything, just one step short of being a seditionist. Uh, oh, for geez. having spoken out so vehemently against oh. the Modi government. Yeah, because Modi, Modi is going full fascist here. Oh, Lord, help us. Yeah. And I wanted to just say anecdotally, I had a sad day two days ago. A good friend, the great writer John Nichols, has died, who wrote first The Sterile Cuckoo, then The Milagro Beanfield Wars, and The Wizard of Loneliness, and on and on. One of the greatest 20th century writers America's produced. Wow, sort of a J.D. Salinger type, a good friend yeah. in town. This is this is not the uh, Wisconsin political writer. No, 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 yeah. no, no. A much more important writer than yeah. me. No, yeah. no offense to Just, him. Yeah, no. Offense, um, yeah. yeah. In fact, I was visiting John in Taos once at his little hideaway there, where he hid out basically his whole life from the press and the literati and all. And uh, Robert Redford showed up out of the blue. They were in the process of figuring out how Redford was going to direct the Milagro Beanfield War. We spent oh, a couple of nights just screaming around Taos in the sleaziest Latino bars. It was fabulous. <laughs> I've heard Robert Redford is a really decent guy. I, I know I know was, two people I, well, who know him. You know, I, all I know is you know spent two evenings there with him in John's house. He Redford was camped out on John's floor. He didn't even have a sofa pull out for him. It was wow. crazy. Yeah, John was a total misanthrope. He hid out from the world. He just hated the whole accolades that he'd received and the fame yeah. and even the money which he gave mostly away to people in need he was a terrific person and and uh, one other quick comment um basically i'm paying homage to all writers you included everyone who writes about important things god bless every single one of you without you we would not make it not even close so bless you as well in that mix well, thank um, you. And, and I think that we need to add to that, you know, some of the people who are just doing spectacular work using uh, video and audio medium. Uh, Politics absolutely. Girl, for example, uh, who I follow, oh, yeah. you know, on, on yes. multiple platforms. Um, yep. I've been on her program, in fact. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry I'm not remembering her name, but uh, she's absolutely brilliant. And, I don't either. I know who you mean. Yeah, and there's, yeah. The, you know, there's a number of people out there and there's some, you know, great stuff going and showing up on Substack as well. Heather, Heather Cox Richardson does oh, yeah. great work. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah. as you say, there's so many. And, and, yeah. but, you know, and bless every one of them. Because, as I say, without you all, we'd just, we'd be, we'd be lost. We'd yeah. just be lost. Yeah. And, uh, touch and, and, on a quick, and a, to end quickly, there was a great, uh, the guy who was called the uh, Sage of Israel back in the 70s, a man named Leibovitz. He coined a horrific term, and, and we don't want to hang on the term too much, but he said in order, this is back in the 70s, set, the, set Israel on fire, that they eventually had to agree, or the smart ones did. He said that if Israel is to continue to oppress the Palestinians, as they have been doing, if they continue to, they will have to become a Judeo-Nazi country, 
in order to justify their oppression. Oh, my. Now, we don't want to hang on that term. No. But, wow, he meant it. And, and at first it just set Israel on fire, and then they all realized, oh, my God, this might be true. And um, so here we are. Yeah, and Netanyahu yeah. Has, not been, has not been helping the situation, yeah. shall we say. Okay, Nicholas, thank you. Yeah, good talking thank to you. you. Thank you. Uh, Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today? Hey, not too much, Tom. I wanted to bring up a point uh, I think will really clarify a lot of things for people if they pay attention, and it's this, um, this, this squabble between Lloyd Austin and Lindsey Graham and why it's important. Lindsey Graham said that Palestinians are, um, since birth, are radicalized. Now, nowhere in the laws of war does it say that radicalization equals the death penalty. We have the most expensive military apparatus ever devised by human beings. If you convert that apparatus to a mechanism or vehicle of revenge or vengeance, then the world is lost. And I can tell you this, um, Vladimir Putin just did the, uh, the Russian People's Conference plenary session where he gave his vision, um, his new world order, the, 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 the overall um, strategic objective of Russia. And it is to shift attention um, or to shift its efforts back to the global south and Asia. He said something that was something that was okay. neglected. Um, okay, now the reason these why are the countries that can become a block of fascist nations, basically. Yes, and, and, and Vladimir Putin's essential speech was faith, family, and freedom. The exact same slogan that Republicans are using to win over Latino voters. Yeah. This sounds good. How can you be against faith, family, and freedom? You cannot, but I'm telling you right now, if you start taking land by force and saying, and redrawing maps and saying, this is now yours, this is what started World War II. Yeah. All right, this, the Republicans... All right, as far as, con there's this word we all need to become familiar with called continuity. It's used in the military all the time. All right, uh, Joe Biden represents the continuity of America. The Republican Party and Donald Trump represents discontinuity. Yep. All right, it is, it is not American. So Joe Biden, in my mind, is president whether he wants to be or not. And if nature takes its course, it must be uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. Yeah. because of continuity tom i don't love joe biden okay but due to continuity this must be the way it goes yeah well we'll see i mean you know uh, kamala harris uh biden was vice president when obama left office and you could make a strong argument that he certainly deserved to to be endorsed by obama as the party's nominee but instead obama went with hillary clinton and we all know how that worked out um, I, I, I'm not, you know, Biden has no obligation to, to prop up Kamala Harris as his, you know, as his endorsee, essentially, uh, you know, f four years from now. But we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how it shakes out. I, I think Gavin Newsom, uh, frankly, has, has a pretty good chance, especially after he ate uh, Ron DeSantis's lunch the other day. Dave, thanks for the call. Shannon in um, Montour, Iowa. Am I saying it right, Shannon? Yeah, that's right. Hey, Shannon, what's up? First time caller. Thank you. Um, I just had something to say about Mr. Trump uh, making a mockery of our judicial system here. Uh, every time he shoots his mouth off about a judge, a court reporter, their family, what have you, uh, a judge reinstated a gag order on Trump on Thursday that he's already violated this gag order twice. And paid like fifteen thousand dollars in fines. Yep. 
Now, we're actually empowering him by not holding him accountable. It doesn't matter if he's running for president or not. He's a private citizen. And uh, when are we going to do something about this? When is that judge going to well, take his judge finger Chutkin, out? Judge Chutkin, when, when, when he argued before her, his lawyers argued before her that uh, he was basically a king and that he couldn't be held accountable. Uh, she just came right out and said, you know, he's he is not a king. He is not even the president any longer, and he can absolutely be held accountable. And, you know, to the full spectrum, uh, I'm not sure that was exactly her phrase, but certainly that was what she meant, full spectrum of legal remedies, which would, you know, go from uh, a $1,000 fine to, to life in prison, right? Uh, or arguably the death penalty, but I don't think anybody's talking about that for Trump, and I don't think it would be appropriate, frankly. But, um, you know, bottom line, yeah, I, 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 think, I, I, I think you're right. And, you know, now he's going after the judge's family because the, the gag order says that, uh, that, that that's awful loud. The, the gag order says that, uh, uh, you know, he, he only can't go after the judge's staff. So now he's going after the judge's wife, making up. You know, his wife doesn't even have a social media account. And he's saying that she does. It's just nuts. Shannon, thank you for the call. Spot on. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's 46 minutes past the hour. I'll be right back with more of your calls in just a moment. Welcome back. Kurt in Akron, Ohio. Hey, Kurt, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching Free Speech. Thanks, Tom, for taking my call. Hey, first of all, in Ohio in 2018, it's John Husted, not John Husted. Thank you very he much. Was our he was our Secretary of State. Now he's our Lieutenant Governor. Right. And the governor right. at the time. Right, and the governor at that time was not DeWine. That was John Kasich who went along with John Husted oh, on that whole thing. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you, Kurt. Yeah, John Kasich, the Republican sellout who uh, spoke at the Democratic National Convention. Back right, and he's now, he's, not, he's now got a paid gig on MSNBC, which just makes me want to barf. Right, and as far as Liz Cheney goes, um, it's nice to have her on our side, but you've got to keep your antenna up because people need to remember that she and Adam Kinzinger, while they were on that J6 committee, they voted 90% of the time with Donald Trump. Yep. On policy. Yeah, they you know they want to end Social Security and Medicare, privatize them both. They want to you know delete the welfare state essentially, as it were. They want to you know roll back most of the New Deal. They want to cut taxes exactly. on rich people, like like you know yeah. her father. So like exactly. So Democrats out there are left leaning independents. Be careful what you wish for with Jim with uh, Liz Cheney and uh, yep. Adam Kingsinger. Yep. Um, also, real quickly, um, that gentleman, Nicholas, who called about thanking the writers, and you said something about the audio. Mm -hmm. um, I and actually video. do the freelance. I actually do freelance writing and audio building for a company in Kansas that deals in old radio, and they specialize also in historic stuff. And I've actually done the writing and the audio building for historic things like, you know, every president going back to Coolidge to Biden, Very um, every cool, presidential Kurt. Every presidential election from 1940 to, to uh, 2020, um, various um, historic events like the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy assassination, Kent State shooting, all that stuff. 
Yeah. Um, in fact, my most recent one is the Trump indictment. But um, wow. what I'm getting at is I'm working on a project right now, and I might see if they might consider using it or using it and seeing if they can contact Free Speech TV once it's fully built to make it a premium is a virtual pamphlet of the history of Joe Biden and Donald Trump for the 2024 campaign for people who don't have time to read the history or read what they have done mm-hmm. and make it completely unfiltered without any media influence. And just to take a suggestion away from Richard Nixon in 1960, listen to the speeches of the candidates to make a decision because, um, you know, this is something you can listen on your phone and, you know, on the go and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's something I'm working on at this point. But I would like to see if maybe this company and Free Speech TV might partner to at least make that a premium in the future. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm not, you know, I mean, my show is on Free Speech TV, but I'm not part of Free Speech TV well, management. I'm not, but, I'm not, I'm but, not saying but anything They're like very that, accessible. My, my, where I'm going with that, Kurt, is they're very accessible. Uh, Lydia is the woman who is in charge of fundraising over there, and uh, I'm sure her contact information is on their website. You might want to drop right. her out. Right, and She's even great, and even the these discs, and even these discs, they're on MP3 discs. You yeah. can get it as an MP3 disc format or just an MP3 format on your phone. And you know they're real cheap; they're like five dollars a disc or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's real inexpensive to get, and you get yeah. hundreds of hours of material on one disc. Yeah, or a lot of people now instead of discs, they're uh, they're pushing it out on thumb drives. Right, and that's where it would be on the phone because yeah. it has the capability of being on your phone or your device. Yeah. So, yeah. anywho, I just wanted to call and give you that information and cool. talk to you later. Thank Good you. luck, Kurt. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Good talking to you. We'll be right back. Ten minutes before the hour. support progressive radio if you're listening to us on a commercial station call their advertisers and let them know you're listening if you're listening to us on pacifica or one of our many nonprofit stations please support them when they do their fundraising drives thanks for supporting progressive talk radio and tag your it so a lot of people are wondering why is it in america that we can't have nice things why don't we have you know the same things every other democracy has every other democracy in the world has a national health care system of some form and everybody is covered. We don't. We've got 27 million un- uninsured people and over 100 million underinsured people. Why is that? Why is it that every other country in the world offers college education very inexpensively if not for free and for here you go to debt? Why is it that we've got our public schools crumbling and other, other countries are doing well? Why is it that we've got Medicare being taken apart by this Medicare Advantage scam and nobody will do anything about it? Well, it turns out the reason why has it boils down to one thing, one Supreme Court decision, Citizens United, legalizing the bribery of our politicians. There's a whole rant about this over at, at uh, HartmanReport.com. Uh, I think you're, you're going to find it very, very useful. Check it out. And uh, welcome back. Picking up your calls here, uh, Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind? Well, Tom, I'm just thinking, you know, Liz Cheney's book, oh, that's fine. And uh, I saw her on Rachel Maddow. But I think I don't know how much importance it really has. Uh, the right-wingers will just dismiss her as, oh, she's gone over to the liberals. And, of course, we've been talking as the progressive side says, oh, don't forget she votes, you know, <laughs> she's, not, she's not one of us. 
does anybody really believe that we're not going to be going through January 6th all over again in January 2025? I it suspect we really will, particularly given that Mike uh, Johnson is the is the Speaker of the House and he was gung-ho for overthrowing you know Biden's election. But I do, speaking well, to Liz Cheney, is, Paul, if I may real quick, um, we keep thinking that somebody's going to step up and essentially rescue the GOP. We thought that uh, Mitt Romney was going to do it. You know, he had a flash of courage there for a few moments. Um, there, there have been a few other names that have been held up as, you know, potential, you know, saviors for the Republican Party. Um, Adam Kinzinger uh, at one point even. Um, I, I really think that if there is anybody who could lead a movement that might return the GOP uh, or turn them away from pure fascism and just turn them back to being, you know, the corporate shills that they have been since 1921, that it's probably Liz Cheney. I mean, can you think of anybody who has better credentials or a higher public profile that she could that, that could be used to accomplish that goal? Well, yeah, I see that point, but I don't. I don't think it's. It'll be like uh, it'll be a new party. It'll be uh, yeah. It's going to have to happen. The Whigs reemerged as the as the as the Lincoln yeah. Republicans. I yeah. mean, it's not going to be. I, I don't know if she has enough political life left. I mean, how old, I don't know how old she is, but. She's in her fifties. It's going to be a period of another decade. Yeah. Well, I think she'll be yeah, around for another decade. But uh, I, you know, I, okay. I agree with you. It's not going to be a fast process, and and probably what will cause it, or what will provoke it, or or begin the process, will be Donald Trump losing the election in 2024. Um, you know, knock sure, wood, right? But but the the Democrats. This is what she she went so far to say. Okay, we have to do everything to make sure that everything will be possible to make sure that Donald Trump is not president again. But she didn't say what it really what's what she really needs to say, which is this is this is we, yes we have to win the election. That's the first step. Mm-hmm. But Donald Trump and uh, whether Mike Johnson is the Speaker of the House or not, they have they have been planning for the last four years, and now they know what they did wrong. So this is they're going to contest the. They don't care what the election is. They didn't care before. They didn't care what the results of the elections are. Right. They don't care. That's their fascists don't care what the results are. And I'm afraid that too many progressives, too many just normal, normal-headed Americans, just say, "Oh, yeah," blindly go along thinking, "Oh, yeah, we'll win," and then everything's going to be back to normal. Uh-uh, fascism is here. Yeah, it's no, it here. absolutely is, and it's been endorsed by the vast majority of elected Republicans all across the country, which should terrify all of us. I'm, I, I agree with that analysis, Paul. Paul, thank you, thank you for the call. Excellent points, all. Doug in Chicago. Hey, Doug, what's on your mind today? You wanted to talk about yeah, uh, hi, the Israel-Hamas war? It's, yes, it's, it's great to have you back from uh, the cold region, by Thank the way. You. Yeah. You're not the spy that came in from the cold, but I've been trying to figure out uh, that you're the, you're the great uh, great leader for progressives. Uh, but anyway, um, yes, uh, it's called uh, muon tomography, which uh, incidentally has your name in there. It's also called muon-graphing. Uh, Mimography. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit nervous here, but um, basically, um, Israel has been touting the fact that uh, Hamas is hiding in their tunnels and all of that stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, that's why it's so hard. And they've been seeming to be indiscriminately bombing Gaza. And um, what they could do is use this technique. It's physics. It's actually it's just using science. Uh, to find where those tunnels are. Now, it doesn't seem like they've been using it, even though it's something that's proven. It's been around. 
Uh, I heard this morning been, that they claimed that they have uh, bombed shut the openings to almost almost half, certainly more than a third of the tunnels already. But again, I, yeah, I, 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 I think the whole world is rapidly turning against them with all these civilian, civilian casualties. It's, this is not the way to do it, in my opinion. And that's the problem. And they might say that, but um, that doesn't say that they've mapped the tunnels. That's uh, possibly due to drone surveillance. And, uh, uh, and then, then maybe uh, intelligence on the ground is to where the entrances and exits yeah. are. Yeah. But uh, they could use the technology to do a complete map. And that yeah. would help to help to wrap this war up maybe a little quicker. Okay, fascinating stuff. I'm not familiar with it, Doug, but I'll take your word for it. Thanks a lot for the call. We'll be back on the other side of this break. Dean Obadala is going to drop by and tell us the real reason Donald Trump says he wants to repeal Obamacare. Stay with us. You're listening to Tom Hartman. recent congressional hearing on America's so-called labor shortage, mega banker Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase offered this insight. People actually have a lot of money, and they don't particularly feel like going back to work. Uh, Jamie, most people are living paycheck to paycheck, and since COVID-19 hit, millions have lost their jobs, savings, and even homes. So they're not exactly lollygagging around the house counting their cash. Instead of listening to the uber-rich class ignorance of Diamond, who pocketed $35 million in pay last year, Congress ought to be listening to actual workers explain why they're not rushing back to the jobs being offered by restaurant chains and such. They would point out that there's no labor shortage, there's a wage shortage. More fundamentally, there's a fairness shortage. It was not lost on restaurant workers, for example, that while millions of them were jobless last year, their corporate CEOs were grabbing millions, buying yachts, and living large. Yet, more than half of laid-off restaurant workers couldn't even get unemployment benefits because their wages had been too low to qualify. Then, there's the high risk of COVID exposure for restaurant employees, an appalling level of sexual harassment in their workplace, and demeaning treatment from abusive bosses and customers. No surprise, then, that more than half of employees said in a recent survey that they're not going back to those jobs. After all, even a dog knows the difference between being stumbled over and being kicked. To get the workers they need, corporate giants should try the free enterprise solution right at their fingertips. Raise pay, improve conditions, improve conditions and show respect. Create a place where people want to work. This is Jim Hightower saying, for a straightforward view from workers themselves, go to the advocacy group OneFairWage.site. Good morning, Portland. You're listening to X-Ray FM, KXRY Portland at 91.1 and 107.1 FM, and in Halem, Wheeler, Manzanita, and Rockaway Beach at 91.7 FM. Streaming online everywhere at x-ray.fm. Tom's coming right back.
The Rosewood Initiative is a place-based nonprofit in Outer East Portland that supports community-driven resources. We convene and work collaboratively with nonprofits and government agencies, creating a community hub with sustainable programs that meet the immediate needs of our neighbors and work upstream to address root causes. Programs such as our Rosewood Bucks, which are the vouchers used at our Maker's Market, put dollars directly into the hands of our neighbors and local businesses. Our Wellness Wednesdays bring fresh food directly to our neighborhood and provide an intentional space for community members to connect with health service providers on a regular basis. We believe that everyone deserves a safe, well-resourced, and amenity-rich neighborhood. The Rosewood Initiative is proud to join other local nonprofits in this year's Give Guide. More information at giveguide.org. X-Ray FM is supported by Slingshot Lounge. Located in southeast Portland on the corner of 56th and Foster, Slingshot Lounge offers an expansive game room, scratch cocktails, and a craft kitchen with a full menu until 2 a.m. Happy hour available weekdays from 3 to 7, and brunch weekends from noon to 4. Slingshot Lounge, decentralizing Portland since 2007.
a little technical difficulties, but let me tell you what we just played there. That was... I don't know. It's gone away from the screen. But anyway, Tom Hartman is coming up in just a few moments, and I'll tell you what else we've got coming up. Democracy Now! follows at noon, and uh, the return of Blazer's Edge at 1, and it's all on X-Ray FM. Might as well just read the old uh, legal ID again. 91.1 and 107.1 FM in Portland. And in Halem, Wheeler, Manzanita, and Rockaway Beach at 91.7. Streaming online everywhere at xray.fm, live and archived. Come on, Tom, get back to us. Here he comes. It's X-Ray. It's professional radio. Welcome to the second hour of our program. He's the host of the Dean Obidala Show, 6 to 9 p.m., right here on Sirius XM Progress Radio Channel 127, a columnist for CNN.com, a contributor to the New Republic. He publishes a, a regular newsletter. It's called The Dean's Report over on Substack. I highly recommend it. I subscribe to it. It's free. You can sign up for it right there, deanobidala.substack.com, or just you know plug Dean's Report in, and it'll pop right up. Uh, Dean Obidala also on Twitter. And, uh, and all that sort of thing. Dean, welcome back to the program. Thanks, and welcome back to North America yeah. after your amazing trip. Yeah, it, it, it was pretty incredible. I, I, you know, it's been on our bucket list forever. We were gonna try and get down there in 2006, but my dad got sick and died, and it kind of blew oh. it up. But we've literally been saving for this trip since then. <laughs> so. Wow, well, that's great. When you come back on my show, we'll have to talk about it more because it really intrigued by it. Okay. Yeah, but uh, you published a piece on the Dean's, the Dean's Report, your, your newsletter, that I thought was absolutely fascinating. The real reason Trump is back to wanting to repeal Obamacare. And I think, you know, a, a lot of people kind of understand this, but they don't understand it. Why don't you lay it out? Sure. Well, my thesis is there are three reasons. But the, the bottom line is we all know Trump is motivated and animated by instinct. It's impulse. So his impulse is that I'm going to go against Obamacare because my base loves when I attack Obama, the first black president, and vow to erase the signature achievement of the first black president. So to me, there, there's that bucket right there, the right. white supremacist bucket. Donald Trump is the defender of whiteness. We know this. I don't have to go through the examples on the show. Everyone's aware of it. I think, secondly, it's the personal component that he view, he's competitive with Obama. And he's angry. He will never be as successful. He'll never be as intelligent or as classy or elegant or anything Obama's done. He will never be that. And I think part of that goes to, you know, all the way back to 2011, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, where Obama mocked him on the world stage. Everyone saw him be laughed at. And I think that kind of fueled the birther. The birther movement was going on then, but I think the birtherism, again, is part of Trump's competitiveness with Obama and his white supremacy. It was a racist campaign. We knew that. And third to me, Tom, is that the one thing Trump does understand, and we all understand he fully gets it, is corporate media. And by talking about this, well, he knows the media will go chase it. They'll write articles about the guy was president for four years and never delivered. He promised fantastic health care and never delivered. And then what, what are they not talking about? Well, 91 felonies. The fact that Donald Trump is charged with north of 30 counts of the Espionage Act, of attempting a coup, that the man is out on bail. So when you're having discussions about policy issues, it helps normalize Donald Trump. And I think he understands that probably more than anything, intuitively, he knows the corporate media will chase it. So to me, it's, it's sort of a three-pronged approach. We talked about it on my show last night. People had other theories as well. But I, I found it 
Tom, when he first mentioned it on social media, I thought, no big deal. Then he doubled down, tripled down. He talked about it Saturday at Iowa during his speech. So now it seems it actually is a plank in his 2024 campaign. And that's why I wrote that, sort of dig down is what's really going on here. You know, race and healthcare in the United States have always been inextricably intertwined. You and I talked about it this on on your program when you had me on when I was uh, plugging my book, The American, The Hidden History of American Healthcare. And right. you know, back in the 1890s, you had Frederick Hoffman, uh, you know, traveling around the United States saying that blacks were genetically inferior, and so if we just if white people just denied them access to healthcare, eventually that would quote solve the black problem, you know, or solve the race problem in America because they'd all die out. Um, and then you get to 1967, and and uh, Lyndon Johnson's putting together Medicare, and the white racist Southern, mostly Democratic at the time, but you know now they're Republicans, the Strom Thurmond vote, the Dixiecrats. Uh, they, right. came, they came to him and they said, you know, we don't want black people in the hospitals and we don't want pe black people showing up in the doctor's office, even, you know, seniors. And uh, so we want you to put a threshold in here that, that poor black people will not be able to uh, leap over. And that's this 20% hole in, uh, I believe it's part B of Medicare. And that's why there's that 20% hole. That's why you have to buy a Medicare policy was purely because the southern white senators felt that that would be the thing that, you know, that would be just too much money for black people to spend so they'd just stay out of the hospital and the doctor's office. I mean, there's just a huge long, and obviously these two that I just touched on are just, you know, the, the very tip of the iceberg. Um, I mean, you know, the Prudential company that, uh, that uh, Frederick Hoffman was the vice president of back in the 20s and 30s and 40s, um, right up to the 1960s was charging people, black people, more for health insurance than white people. Maybe it was life insurance, but for insurance anyway. Sure. So it's been around forever. Yeah, and also with Donald Trump, I mean, uh, I know there are people who listen to our discussion about like, an issue like this and they go, well, what does race play a role? But I think they understand with Trump, race always plays a role. Yeah. And the idea of dismantling the senior achievement of the first black president, to me, that achievement and, and Obama's achievement is a threat to the myth of white superiority. It's not just white supremacy, it's sort of what you're getting at. This idea that intellectually, white people are superior to black people. That's the right. faux science that underlines, yeah. exactly, that's the faux science that underlines some of the, the rights movement where they'll say like when Trump talked about Obama never could have gotten to Columbia and Harvard Law School, I wanna see his grades. Well, that's, that's, that's the subtle point underneath that, where Donald Trump attacked Maxine Waters' low IQ and other prominent black figures as being dumb and being low IQ. That's again, is part of that, it's a consistent theme. It's the same way that you see bigots on the right call people who are minorities who've gotten jobs as quota hires. I've been yeah. called a quota hire by a right-wing guy, Kurt Schlichter, who's an asshole. Excuse me for cursing. Yeah, but, yeah we can't uh, talk like ago, that over here, but uh, you know. Sorry about that, we'll have to beat that out. Yeah. It is free, free speech TV, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we are on commercial stations, so I, but I think, right, so, I think sorry, Sean beeped it. Um, Thank so, goodness. Anyway. Thank you, Sean. For being, yeah. I won't curse again. On my show, it's just like a, it's a sailor's rant. Oh, I, mean, I love I coming on your show because I can swear. But <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> back so, to the story. So, so the point is, like, to these people, the fragile white supremacists on the right, black excellence really is a threat. It's why they want to ban in black history in school, because yeah. black excellence is a threat. And there are certain people that on our side that who might be white who fully don't appreciate that. I know you talk about it. We talk about it on my show a great deal. That motivates so much of this right-wing movement. So Trump could leave tomorrow. 
the white supremacy of this party remains, of course, it's vibrant. It's part of the animating factor of today's GOP. I think it's the main thing that binds people to Donald Trump. And uh, it, what yep. astonishes me, Dean, is how how rarely when the when the mainstream media does these man in the street interviews or they love to go into diners or whatever, you know, and they, they interview these Trump supporters, they never ask them the questions. And you don't have to ask it just right up. I mean, you're not going to get an honest right. answer anyway. Hey, are you a racist? Are you supporting him because he hates black people? Um, you know, right. obviously, they're not going to answer that. But but there are ways to frame the question, you know, like you know, talking about you know, affirmative action, for example. I mean, there's ways to frame the question that will elicit the the hierarchy of priorities that these voters have that binds them to Trump, and I would be willing to bet, and uh, you know I, I, I'm generally not a betting man, but I would be willing to bet that that race is number one and probably number two and number three for most of Trump's white supporters. I certainly see that. You know the pieces that I've written um, over at Hartman Report, for example, you know that I post on, uh, in particular Twitter. I mean Twitter's become a right wing sewer recently. And, it is. and, and uh, you know, I post the something there calling Trump a racist and I immediately get, you know, 50, 100 people saying, well, just name one thing he said that's racist, you know. And it's like, I'm not even going to engage with these trolls. You know, that's that's what they live for. Right. Is a response. But yep. but it is just so obvious that, you know, they know what's going on. They know what's sure. going on. Yeah, I, I had a listener call my show a few years ago who said Donald Trump makes him feel proud to be white again. And he wasn't even hiding it. And he didn't say yeah. it in a racist way. Yeah. That's the point. Because they'll say, well, there's Black Lives Matters. There's group for Latinos. There's groups for Muslim Americans. Well, I'm white. And now this white victimhood runs through the GOP. And there are studies that show that. And I'm sure you've seen them. In the last few years, as Trump got in office and through today, there are more people who are white Republicans who view white people as the biggest victim of discrimination, more so than black people. So this white victim was underneath it. That's why they don't want to hear about the suffering of other communities and discrimination against other communities because now they feel like they're the number one victim when well, they're still 70% of the country. But just seeing other faces that are not reflective of their own is a challenge. And that's, yeah. again, like the, the quota hire, I, I curse because I got off my topic there. But the point of quota hire is in their view that the only way someone, a minority can get a job over a white person is that you're a quota hire. You can never be as good as a white person you're inherently inferior intellectually in every other way. That's what motivates them. So Tom, I agree with you. I think the bond that people don't understand, why do they love Trump? He's a defender of whiteness. He's a defender yeah. of white civilization. He white is supremacy. their grand wizard. Yeah, and white supremacy. So that connection is, it's not about policy. It literally, he is their defender of whiteness and they view him as the savior holding off the barbarians at the gate that are all different colors coming into America or living here. Yeah. It's not no, It's not about policy. No, I, I, I totally get it. We're talking with the great Dean Obidala. He's uh, uh, on Sirius XM Progress, 6 to 9 p.m. His uh, newsletter uh, is the Dean's Report over on Substack and well worth your time uh, signing up for it. Dean, uh, we've got about a minute and a half here before we hit a hard break I can't control. Sure. And uh, <laughs> I, I, as, speaking of minorities, I mean, you're a Muslim. And, and, I am. And, and you said believe, that like an accusation. But and, I and, I, and I believe your father's Palestinian. And, and yes. uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, yes. uh, so I'm curious your thoughts about what might happen to you. I mean, I wrote a piece a while back about, you know, if Trump becomes president, I'll probably end up in jail, but not because of my race. I mean, I'm, I'm a Protestant right. white guy. Um, but uh, what what impact do you think his uh, second Trump presidency will have on the Muslim community in the United States? 
Well, I think I will have the best radio show in the Muslim internment camp. So I'm looking forward to that. I'll be doing comedy there. I'll be quite popular. Look, he gets... You're, you're being serious here, I'm guessing. Uh, well, I'm not really sure because we're going to... I think we're going to prevent that from happening. I yeah. think too many people believe in our this experiment called uh, the Democratic Republic of the United States of America. But look, there's a lot of... And I just wrote an article about it. It's going to go up tomorrow. Um, the Muslim and Arab community upset with Joe Biden. There's even these handful of people starting this ab abandoned Biden campaign. I love that my community is pressuring Biden and every elected official to be responsive. Every minority community does that. I will push back against an abandoned Biden campaign because the stakes are really high with Donald yeah. Trump. I will say if Trump is not the nominee on the right, I have more concerns for President Biden because people in my community won't have the direct knowledge of what that person might do. Let's say it's a Nikki Haley. But yeah. I do think it will be Donald Trump. And well, he is an existential threat to our everything we believe in. And I'm not so sure Nikki we, Haley isn't either. I mean, policy-wise, she's right there with Trump, right right straight down the middle. And, and She's awful. I, she's just yeah. not known as well. That's, that's all. That's Trump, right. everyone knows. You can't that's, deny it. That's right. Like, he's awful. We Dean Obidala, The Dean's Report over on Substack. Check it out. Dean, thanks a lot for dropping by. Thanks, Tom. Good talking to you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's 18 and a half minutes past the hour. I'll be back with uh, a crazy alert and your calls. Stay tuned. And welcome back. Let's see here. Jim in Canadian Lakes, Michigan. Hey, Jim, uh, you know, I grew up in Michigan and I've never heard of Canadian Lakes. Where are you? It's southeast of Big Rapids. Ah, okay. Interesting. There's a little community. It's a, a co-op community. Uh-huh. And it's, uh, it's a resort area. Huh. Interesting. Well, thank you for that. You've expanded my ge geographic knowledge. So what's on your mind today? Well, the funding of Ukraine... Um, we need everyone on the phones to Mike Johnson. We need them to get as much money, if, if any money, from that clown. But we need so much pressure. I agree. To, to get Ukrainian money, or not money, but arms. Funding for Ukraine, yeah. Yes. So that's, that's the main thing. Get on the phones. I've I've already called a uh, right wing radio show, sort of degraded them uh, for being uh, so, so so called anti communists, but they're helping Putin, right? And um, and that's their story, and that's the story for them. It's really sickening. Yep. Yeah, so, it really is. The GOP. Um, I mean, one after another, Republicans are are falling to Donald Trump's demand that they support. Vladimir Putin over a democratic ally of the United States and Europe. It's, I, you know, it's, I, I think of how, how my father would have reacted to this when, back when he was alive, you know, my Republican father. I, I, I can't imagine any Republican just 10 years ago saying, yeah, yeah, let's go along with Vladimir Putin instead of, uh, you know, instead of a democracy. It's just amazing, when I, Jim. When I was talking to the radio host, um, he said uh, the Ukrainians lost the war. That's just a waste of time and money. Okay. And I'm um, this is for real news that somehow is getting out to the right wing uh, echo chamber. And 
I thought last time I heard on your show, the Ukrainians were doing great. Yeah. Yeah, they are actually in many ways. But, you know, they're, they're up against one of the largest militaries in the world. And, and, and Putin has basically an unlimited money stream. I mean, he's basically a, a gas station attached to a country. He's, you know, um, and, and yeah, yeah, so, are, so are we. Yeah, but I mean, he's got an economy the size of Italy's. <laughs> we have a slightly bigger economy, but still, you know, he's he's got a, a you know this this unlimited source of of funding through through fossil fuels, and <clears throat> I'm just I, my my concern is if he takes Ukraine, you know, what's next? I mean, you know, he's he, his generals have already said that they're looking at Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Um, that is NATO. That is World War Three. I think that you know helping Ukraine actually is preventing World War Three right now. I, I agree totally, and I am a Polish descendant. And once again, the Poles have taken the brunt over and over and over. Yeah. And I can see if Donald Trump gets in, uh, it's just going to be no have Poland, whatever. Yeah. Um, hey, Hitler did it in '39. Why can't Trump? Why can't uh, Putin do it now? Is probably how he's thinking. Jim, thanks for the call. Uh, Nice to hear from you and from Canadian Lakes. I appreciate it. We'll be back. It's 22 minutes past the hour. Stay tuned. Missed my opening rant today? It's usually published over at HartmanReport.com where you can read it and share it with your friends for free. Check it out, HartmanReport.com. When I was a little kid, my grandmother had a piano and I loved to play it. I, 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 I was incompetent, <laughs> but, but I was figuring out all kinds of stuff. And then I kind of got away from it and, you know, went to school and things got busy and just lost track of it. Well, now there's this fascinating new study out of the University of, of Geneva, Switzerland, that is making me think, maybe I should go back and learn the piano. Uh, it, what they found was that they, they, they took a group of 132 healthy uh, older adults, uh, retired, 62 to 78 years old. Half of them learned the piano. Half of them took music classes uh, without learning the piano. And what they found was that those who learned the piano actually had uh, the, the strongest increase in their memory, in their, in their, in their mental competence, their mental faculties. Those who took the music classes also, also did well, but the, learning the piano was a huge step. So uh, check it out. There's a whole long rant about this over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. Welcome back. So uh, <laughs> crazy alert. I mean, this is this is this is beyond crazy. This is this is really a pathetic alert. I I, I just don't know how to describe this uh, beyond this. Uh, you know, James Comer, the uh, the uh, IQ challenged Republican congressman from Kentucky, who is the chair of the House uh, uh, Oversight Committee, has uh, been on a tear trying to go after Hunter Biden. This is like his cause of his life is to is to somehow prove that Hunter Biden and Joe Biden are part of the Biden crime family and they're getting money from China and. Joe's getting money from China and giving it to Hunter, or Hunter's getting money from China and giving it to Joe. And every time he finds a check going to or from Joe Biden, it becomes a major headline story over on Fox so-called news. 
the most recent one is he found three payments of $1,380 each between October and November, uh, September, October, and November of 2018, made to Joe Biden by his son Hunter. And so James Comer is like, aha, I've got the smoking gun. In fact, he, honest to God, he goes on Fox News and, uh, or excuse me, this was Newsmax Monday, last night, Monday night, um, to discuss his new piece of evidence. Um, he, he says it's bull crap, <laughs> you know, to say that this was, oh, just repaying a car loan. He says, obviously, Biden benefited directly because his son paid back his loan. Well, yeah, if my son paid back a loan, I would benefit directly from it. And then he goes on to say, this is an impeachable offense. <laughs> so what happened was when, uh, when Hunter Biden was in the midst of his alcohol and drug-fueled addiction, uh, he needed a car, and he had lost his credit. His credit rating was you know, in the tank and literally could not get a loan to buy a car. Actually, in this case, it was a truck. It was a... Uh, a Ford truck. So uh, his dad loaned him the money for the first, for the, you know, co-signed for the note and paid the first three months of the, of the loan. And then by that time, Hunter had gotten clean and straight and gotten a job and gotten his credit back. And he was able to take over the loan and make the payments directly. Uh, as Abby Lowell, uh, Hunter Biden's lawyer, said, the truth is Hunter's father helped him when he was struggling financially due to his addiction and could not secure credit to finance a truck. When Hunter was able to, he's paid his dad back and took over the payments himself. Not a story, right? But here's James Comer going, I got the proof. And then Fox News, Jonathan Turley, this, this guy who pretends to be a lawyer, this hack lawyer on Fox News, he comes out and he goes, oh, yeah, this is, this is serious stuff. He says, now we see joint accounts where money is moving to Joe Biden. So I think the moment of truth has arrived. Democrats have either got to show that they stand against corruption and prove an inquiry or they have to take ownership of this. Right. Ownership or repaying a car loan? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. To be more accurate, the first three months of a car loan? Seriously? These people are pathetic. the Tom Harbin University Book Club, To Change the Church, Pope Francis and the Future of Catholicism is the book by Russ Douthat. This is from the preface. This is a book about the most important religious story of our time, the fate of the world's largest religious institution under a pope who believes that Catholicism can change in ways that his predecessors rejected and who faces resistance from Catholics who believe the changes he seeks risk breaking faith with Jesus Christ. It's also a story that cannot be written about neutrally. The outsider to Catholicism is unlikely to fully grasp or appreciate the stakes or to take the competing theologies as seriously as do the bishops, cardinals, and lay Catholics embroiled in the church's civil war. The insider, the believer, is likely to be pulled to one side or another to see God's hand at work in either reform or resistance to assume that Holy Scripture has a favorite in that struggle. So it makes sense at the outset to briefly lay out my own background and biases, the experiences and assumptions that I bring to the telling of this fascinating and very much unfinished story. I was not born a Roman Catholic, nor, but neither did I join the Catholic Church as an adult. 
My family was Episcopalian in the beginning, and as a child, I received a certain amount of religious formation, distinctively strange formation in some cases, in various Protestant circles, mainline and evangelical and Pentecostalist. Then I became a Catholic as a teenager, along with my family, in a shift that I welcomed, but was impelled more by my mother's spiritual journey than my own. So in the world of cradle Catholics and adult converts, groups that are often contrasted with one another and occasionally find themselves at odds, I belong to the little-known third category in between. As a result, I share something with each group while lacking something each enjoys. Like other converts, I did not recite Hail Marys as a child or experience the church as a deep ancestral inheritance bound up with blood and class and ethnic patrimony. Instead, I made an intellectualized religious choice, reading the books that converts tend to read and deciding things that they decide, choosing Catholicism because its claims were more convincing than the Protestant churches of my youth. But I did so while I was still half a kid, under strong maternal influence, which meant that I also had elements of the cradle Catholic experience, a devoutly Catholic mother, confirmation classes with other teens rather than the adult-oriented conversion program, an after-school job manning the desk in my parish's priory, a hormonal adolescence, and the intendant Catholic guilt. And it meant that, all, like all cradle Catholics, I have no way of knowing for certain if I would have chosen the church simply on my own initiative, independent of family influence. My intellect says yes, but my self-awareness raises an eyebrow because I have strong interest, a strong interest in religious questions, but relatively little natural piety. I can imagine myself lingering in the antechamber of a conversion, hesitating to pass inside. When I went out into the world, to college, and then into journalism, where my identity as a Catholic became more important to my writing, this in-between feeling took on a new cast. In the secular world, my faith made me a curiosity and sometimes an extremist. I was a real live Catholic, not the lapsed or collapsed or Christmas and Easter sort that populates so many campuses and newsrooms. And what's more, I had actually chosen to join the faith, deliberately signed on to all the strange dogmas and strict moral rules. And even if my friends and colleagues noticed that I didn't always live by them, I at least went to Mass every Sunday and spoke up for something called orthodoxy in my writing, which was enough to make me seem like a zealot. The friendly sort, the kind you would have a beer and enjoy an argument with, but a guy with pretty strange ideas all the same. But then if I went along, uh, if I went among my fellow true believers, both those who had converted and those cradle Catholics who were committed theologically as well as tribally, I was always conscious that my secular friends were wrong, that I wasn't much of a zealot after all, that I lacked something required for the part I had been assigned in my professional life. My fellow serious Catholics seemed to have sincerity and certainty, where I had irony and doubt. They went on retreats and knew that those fast days, knew whose fast days it was, and had special devotions and prayed novenas, novenas. I was always forgetting basic prayers and holy days of obligation. They seemed to approach the dogmas and rules as a gift, a source of freedom, a ladder up to God. I wrestled with them, doubted them, disobeyed them, constantly ran variations on Pascal's wager in my head. They joined, jo they joined Opus Dei or attended Latin masses. I was often at a 5 p.m. guitar class, hating the aesthetics but preferring the schedule because it fit my spiritual faith. Sloth, excuse me. Sometimes I felt as though my conversion was incomplete, awaiting some further grace or transformation. At other times I felt that I belonged to a category of Catholics that used to be common in Catholic novels and Catholic sociology but had been abolished somewhere in the 1970s. The good-bad Catholic, or the bad-good one, whose loyalty was stronger than his faith and whose faith was stronger than his practice, but who didn't want the church to change all the rules to make his practice easier because then what would really be the point? 
That meant that, unlike many Catholics I knew who were loyal to the church as a community but doubtful of its doctrines, I did not want this tension to be smoothed away by understanding priests and broad-minded theologians. Indeed, the conflict between what I professed and how badly I felt fell short was part of what made the profession seem plausible, because a religion that just confirmed me in my early 21st century of life couldn't possibly be divinely revealed. No, I wanted the church to be the church, to vindicate its claim to be supernaturally founded by resisting the tides and the fashions of the age. But at the same time, I didn't want that resistance to go too far and actually forge the smaller, purer Benedictine monastery church to change the church. Hey, if you like the rants that I open the show with every day, they're typically published over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. So MAGA Mike and the Republicans want a religious test for people running for public office. They want to know that you are sufficiently Christian to be worthy of being elected. Right. MAGA Mike is one of these uh, seven mountain evangelicals. There are seven domains where these dominionists believe that we need to have religion completely take them over. Education, religion, family, business, government, military, arts and entertainment, and the media. Seriously. This is not what Jesus was preaching when he said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto, unto God what is God's. This is the opposite, in fact, of what Jesus was teaching. It's the opposite of Matthew 25, where Jesus said, the only way to get to heaven is by feeding the hungry, healing the sick, helping the poor. It's, this is counter-Christian, anti-Christian, in fact. In fact, I think you could say it is the Antichrist's work. There's a piece about it over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. Welcome back. 35 minutes past the hour and uh, picking up your calls here. James in Portland. Hey, James, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, I want to get your take on um, Trump having the power of pardon, especially the pardon to pardon himself. Now, that is outrageous. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't a Malam boss love to have that? I mean, that's pretty much his M.O. Well, it also doesn't make any sense because uh, if, uh, you know, under, under that theory, the vice president could walk into the Oval Office, shoot dead the president, proclaim, proclaim himself president, and pardon himself. It's not how democracy yeah. is supposed to work. Yeah, so, I mean, that'd be legal? Well, What's going according on? to Trump, it would be legal. According to any rational person, no, it wouldn't be. I don't. I think. So I think. I think. Should the day come that a self-pardon comes before the Supreme Court, they will strike it down. That doesn't mean that Trump will go along with what they say. I mean, we've had two presidents on three occasions ignore the Supreme Court. Andrew Jackson did it twice. Abe Lincoln did it once. Um, the, the the Supreme Court has no enforcement mechanism. Um, but uh, you know, we'll see. What, is that written in the Constitution or something? Where'd that come yeah. up? Where'd this pardon baloney come up with? Yeah, the pardon power with... is in the Constitution, and there was a vigorous debate about it in the, in the Continental Congress. Um, and another debate about it, actually, I wrote about this uh, two weeks ago. I wrote a piece about Trump and, and pardons, uh, that he was selling pardons, and uh, quoted James Madison and I think George Mason, as I recall, um, who had this conversation during the Virginia Ratifying Convention about the pardon power 
And basically, you know, George Mason was saying, you know, if we ever get a scoundrel in the White House, he'll pardon all his friends and they'll give him all the money. And, you know, you've got this is a prescription for corruption. And Madison's response was similar to what Alexander Hamilton had said in, I think, Federalist 54, if I remember correctly. It's one of the Federalist papers that deals with the, the Electoral College, which is that, you know, we've got this spiffy new thing called the Electoral College, and these electors, they're going to get to know the actual presidential candidates, and they're going to be, you know, men of good repute, and they will, they will not vote for a, for a person of low moral character. So you don't have to worry about that. Well, guess yeah. what? <laughs> Trump happened. So anyhow, that's the story. So um, one last thing. So these, these, he's on trial for all these things, but he keeps they keep putting it off and off and off. Right. And they could, they could go into the election, or maybe even after, let's say he gets put in as president. And okay, then the trial. What's what happens then? He's the president, and he's on trial. What goes on there? It's entirely brand new territory, James. We, nobody, nobody knows. I mean, this is brand new territory. They're, they're, frankly, I think the starting point, and I think Democrats are missing an opportunity here. I think this is the sort of thing that the, the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, at the very least, or, or the Senate equivalent of the House Oversight Committee, I don't know what it's called in the Senate, should be looking into which is the selling of pardons by Donald Trump, because you've got multiple sources. I quoted three different sources in my article who all under oath said that, including Cassidy Hutchinson, who said that uh, Trump and Giuliani were selling pardons for $2 million a pop and they were splitting the money. And there's some really, really sketchy pardons. A lot of them, like I believe it was close to 100 of them that happened in the last couple days of the Trump presidency. And, uh, you know, how much money did Trump walk away from, uh, you know, walk away with from that? We don't know. Um, but at $2 million a pop, you know, over 100 pardons, that's, that's not chicken feed any longer. James, I've got to move along, but thank you for the call. Terry in Ventura, California. Hey, Terry, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Tom, the reason I'm calling is uh, your comment earlier about Gavin Newsom and the points he made in the debate. Yeah. And, yeah, I agree he did a good job. As I told your screener, he could have done a far better job. Uh, the American public reacts to issues such as the gas tax. Uh, that's a biggie, okay? And my comment about the attacks uh, DeSantis made to Newsom did not go uh, rebutted. And uh, first of all, the American uh, debate structure is ridiculous to talk public policy. Some of the things on my mind, we probably wouldn't won't get to in the one or two minutes you give me sure housing and, and transportation but uh the whole american setup is ridiculous to think you can talk about public policy isn't that way we, we have a government public yeah. policy? we should bring back the lincoln douglas debates i mean that that ran over what three days as i recall right <laughs> i mean the, to talk public policy in 60 seconds is absurd and it was a setup yeah. by Hannity to yeah. cover the topics that really get to the American uh, uh, psyche. Uh, right what I have in mind, right, and what I have, well, the gas tax, but we lived in France eight years, and one of the debate structures they had in France, I remember Sarkozy with the debater, they give, they give uh, them 10 minutes to mm. discuss public policy. Can you imagine Tom? Trump talking 10 minutes on any given issue instead of 60 seconds. The Republican won't debate if you give him more than sound date time. As to yeah. public policy, a couple of things I want to talk about. I still have the bumper sticker on my car from 2018. Californians 
passed uh, a gas tax. It wasn't the politicians. It was the California voters right. passed a gas tax. And if you see the signs in California saying SB1, that's because of the gas tax voters passed, not the state legislature. Hmm. And uh, a significant percentage is to go to alternative transportation. I think that's why they voted for it. Right. You know, Metrolink and things like that. Yep. The other thing that I think uh, Newsom could have been a better job on on uh, rebutting is the number of Californians leaving California and uh, public policy. That's housing. Yeah. Why? Uh, two things I want to make. I remember the LA Times did a study on uh, public policy and housing. And uh, really, in many of our urban cities, we have a spatial problem. You can't go out. There Our cities are hemmed in and you have to go up. And gentrification is the cause of housing costs and the homeless. I mean, to a large you, extent. I think you've covered yeah. You've covered you've you've covered little Haiti in Miami, yep. where all of, because of the elevation, they're going to push those people out. What's going to happen to them? They're going to go homeless. Yeah. Those are my views about public policy, Tom. Okay, and we do a lousy job of covering it. Final point: If you want to check out a story that rebutted DeSantis and Newsom, many of the states have uh, progressive. Uh, economic think tanks that cover state policy in California. It's Cal Matters. Michigan is Michigan Advance. California Cal Matters. November 29th, they really took apart these public policy issues in California and uh, did a comparison to uh, California and Florida. November 29th, and they really had great economic sources as to really understanding the difference between California and Florida. And Florida did not necessarily come in that much better, okay? Right. And people are leaving Florida due to taxes and uh, insurance. Yeah, uh, insurance is one of the big drivers. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just quality of life. you got a lot of teachers leaving Florida, for example, a lot of families. Uh, excellent points all, all, Terry. Thank you very much for that. Sandra in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, what's on your mind? Well, I was just thinking about how Gen Z kind of reminds me a little bit of my parents' generation, considered the greatest generation, mm -hmm. because they set their personal dreams and lives aside to march off to wherever in the world they were sent to stop fascism. And I think Gen Z could become the second greatest generation if they unite and vote to stop Republicans. Yeah. What do you think? I think it's possible. I am very concerned about the trends that I'm seeing on social media and the young people who are being hooked into uh, these right-wing memes by, by uh, you know, by the toxic nature and the, and the algorithms in social media. Uh, this did not exist during the, the greatest generations era or even during right. my generations era. And I think it's doing actual damage to our democracy. Maybe family needs to talk with them. Yeah. older people and say yeah. remember when well and i think that we need to make the, the algorithms transparent I, I, yeah. you know that that's the the number one thing in my mind is publish publish the damn algorithms because you know as long as those algorithms are secret and they're being used to promote right-wing stuff it's like you know they the facebook twitter all these other companies they can just say oh well, you know, it's, it's just what it is it's not this is intentional yeah. sandra i gotta run but thank yeah. you for the call it's 44 minutes past the hour. We'll be back with more of your calls in just a moment. Stay tuned.
You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I'll be right back with more of your calls in just a moment. Stay with us. George in Portland, Oregon. Hey, George, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Hey, I wanted to uh, just implore your audience, if they haven't already read the piece, the Washington Post um, opinion piece from last Thursday, I believe, about the inevitability of authoritarianism, should Trump win, Mm -hmm. and the real possibility of Trump winning. Um, I, I wish they would, and I'm really happy to see that at last the media is talking about it. I mean, it's been obvious for years that this is what was coming and this is what the Republican Party's been turning into. Mm-hmm. But we're just ca- the media's just catching up. Yeah. And I feel like it might be too late. And we need to be taking it very, very seriously. I agree with you, George. Thanks, you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Dennis in Perry, Michigan. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind today? Uh, you, Corrine. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I give... Uh, once a month out of my checkbook or my MasterCard. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't get it. I don't get, you know, are these people that won't give help to money to Ukraine, are they fascists? Are they communists? Exactly how do they, uh, you know, describe themselves? Yeah, I don't think the word communist has much meaning anymore, but uh, Vladimir Putin is certainly a fascist, and there's certainly, and as is Donald Trump, and Trump has been telling Republicans to cut funding for Ukraine because Putin has been telling Trump that. Now, whether Putin is still blackmailing Trump or whether Putin is the guy that Trump is going to flee to if he faces a prison sentence or, you know, uh, whether Putin is paying Trump, I mean, I have no idea what it, what the whole Putin has had and continues to have over Trump is, but it's real, it's, it's fairly obvious. And Trump is telling Republicans, no more money for Ukraine, and Republicans are saying, sir, yes, sir. Yeah. yeah. It's grim. Uh, it's wrong. Yeah, it is. It really is. Yes. Yep, okay, yes. Dennis, thank you for the call. Uh, Kent in Vahoa, uh, Hawaii. Hey, Kent, what's up? Hey, aloha, Tom. Thank you very much for taking my call. I really appreciate your program. It's one of the things around. Yeah, uh, talking about the war machine, uh, especially Americans, they have no idea what it really is and what it's like and how it really affects a person. And I would just have to say some of the things I saw were just crazy. You went off to war? Yes, sir. I was in Nam, but that doesn't really matter. But the one thing is how it affects people and what it's amazing what uh, how resilient uh, veterans are. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that really got me, I was a radio operator in the jungle, and uh, the wire over the wire came that uh, uh, Martin Luther King was shot, was killed, mm-hmm. and I looked over. And there was the black guys in the jungle crying. Yeah. And I was just just tormented from that. I still tormented from that. Yeah. And then here we just keep uh we've gone through three illegal wars for nothing for all these people that have 
serve their country and then for nothing. And yeah. I'm sure they all. I, I would play. say four. I think the first Gulf War was a sham too. You know, so you got Vietnam, the first Gulf War, the second Gulf War, and Afghanistan. All of them were we relied into, in my opinion. But I, I, I get yeah. it, Kent. And, and you know, I think you're speaking to my point earlier that most Americans have no idea what the real cost of war is or what it even looks like. And people like yourself have the authority to speak, and I'm glad you're speaking out. Kent, thank you very much. We'll be back. It's 49 minutes past the hour. Hey, thanks so much for sharing our program and for reaching out to our stations and sponsors and letting them know that you're listening. It really means a lot to us. From Los Angeles to Columbia, South Carolina, from Birmingham, Alabama to Baltimore, universal basic income programs are chalking up proof after proof of their viability. Basically, just giving people, low-income people, poor people, somewhere between $500 and $1,500 a month, no strings attached, is lifting people out of poverty, getting them back on track, getting them into solid middle-class jobs, helping their children tremendously. This works. Now, we don't have to do UBI in the United States. We're the only developed country in the world that doesn't have a national health care program. Health expenses are whacking a lot of low-income people. We're the only country, developed country in the world that doesn't have free college education. Education expenses are whacking people. There's a lot we could do. We can subsidize housing. We can subsidize food. We do that with food stamps. We could expand it. There's a lot we could do to, to, to benefit from this. There's a whole report about that over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. Ten minutes before the hour, picking up your calls here, Bob in Bainbridge, Georgia. Hey, Bob, what's up? Uh, hey, Tom, I just retired, and now I get to hear you five times a week. Oh, great. Well, good on you, Bob. Uh, what I'm calling about is uh, about 50 miles below uh, Tallahassee, there's a, a lumber yard, and uh, Georgia Pacific bought it. And so the Koch brothers bought it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's uh, just a lumber yard with all those smokestacks putting out smoke all the time. And they had a, a, a pipe going down to the creek, and they were dumping all the waste in the creek, mm -hmm. and it was running a mile and a half to the gulf. And the Florida DEP came in and said, well, just take the make your pipe go all the way from your plant to the Gulf, because mm. they were destroying the creek. And uh, later, the uh, Koch brothers called up Rick Scott and said, uh, uh, told told him about it, and uh, they they ended up firing the Florida DEP uh, leader. Really, this and, is when Rick Scott was governor down there. He's senator now. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he he said, uh, "I don't want you to even say the word climate change." Remember when they oh, said yeah. that? Yeah, they yeah. Rick Scott forbade the use of the phrase climate change in any government documents when he was governor. Yeah, well that well uh, this tornado that just came, uh, where the hurricane Ida, mm -hmm. it came and wiped out the whole plant, the oh, whole lumberyard. Wow. And now they have closed. They just not gonna open it back up. And they're uh -huh. closing it, 
and 400 people go lose the job. Oh, no. And that includes, like, all the logging companies, you know, that bought the logs and stuff yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. And I just want, didn't think anybody really knew out on the West Coast that that happened. Yeah, no, we didn't. But, Bob, thank you for informing us. It's a fascinating story, and, and uh, climate change has taken out an awful lot these days, and, and it's going to take out a whole lot more. And, and that story and of Rick Scott got is, them back. Yeah, there you go. And that story of Rick Scott <laughs> is truly hor- horrible. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for that. Uh, Gabriella in uh, Tahunga, California. Hey, Gabriella, what's up? Hey, Tom. Thanks for pronouncing it right. Sure. A um, couple things. First, I want to thank you for uh, the video and audio <clears throat> for the first Barry Goldwater uh, thing. I'm your age. I never heard it, never saw uh, it. Oh, really? Yes. Interesting. Yes. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm your age, but I did hear things politically back then. Yeah. So thank you for that. Sure. And then I have a historical question mm-hmm. for you. Um, I belong to a, a few wonderful democratic groups, and we meet periodically. And there's a few people that have disagreed with us getting involved in Ukraine and and other such things. And one of the comments made that I was horrified by, we were talking about war and how we got into World War II, and one, one person said, well, we were never attacked in, during World War II. Whoa. And I think, she, yeah, I'd like you to explain that because Hawaii was not yet a state. Is that right? I don't recall. No, I believe Hawaii became a state in the 1950s because I was in elementary school and it became a state. So it was a territory. But yes. a territory or a protectorate of the United States is considered part of the United States. It's, yes. You know, so. Yeah, I was horrified when she made that remark because she's a very smart person, and I'm thinking she's just, um, what do you call it, what, one of these people that just doesn't want to get involved no matter what. And, yeah, or uh, they're listening know, to right wing radio and stuff. something in her backyard. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, I just uh, wanted your take on that because I was horrified, and from the get-go she was against the whole Ukraine, and she wanted... Give him what he wants, basically, to Putin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's you know, the thing. I mean, it's not. It's not it, to, to to widen the the lens here, Gabriella, and and yeah. and you know, make the a bigger picture here. Um, not only was the United States attacked at Pearl Harbor in 1941, um, but we were also attacked when Hitler went into Poland, when Hitler went into Austria, uh, you know, when Hitler uh, went after England, uh, because we are part of the the democratic nations of the world uh you know we we, we share I, they, they all imitated us you know it's like we were the first among equals and and so i would argue that that we uh, needs that definition of we needs to be bigger than just the, the united states of america it needs to be the the democracies of the world the countries of the world that that believe in freedom that believe Pardon, forgive me. I have the hiccups. That believe in in um, uh, you know democratic government. Yep, I agree. I agree. Um, unfortunately, and nobody wants war. And until the Ukraine thing, I'm like you. I don't want to get involved in any further, you know, crisis like this. I'm tired of being quote the policeman of the world. But I'm with you. When we see a completely unethical attack and trying to 
bring back the Soviet Union, whether people want to join it or not, yeah. and break up. I I couldn't I couldn't take that. So, you know, I'm kind of on board with with your take, and I was yeah. horrified that I was also on board with protecting them. Yeah. Well, you know, when we hear that kind of stuff, we need to speak up because it's just it's so malinformed or misinformed, and it's so unfortunate. But, yeah, thank you very much, Gabriel. Great to hear from you, and, and uh, thank you for the call. Um, and I couldn't have said it better. We'll be back on the other side of the break. We're number one. We really are. I'll tell you about that right after the break. You're listening to Tom Hartman. If you're a corporate employee, you know that something unpleasant is afoot when top executives are suddenly issuing statements about how committed they are to their employees, making sure that all of them are treated with dignity and respect. For example, the PR chief of a global outfit named Teleperformance, one of the world's largest call centers, was recently going on and on about how, quote, we value our people and their well-being, safety, and happiness. Why did the corporation feel such a desperate need to proclaim its virtue? Because it's been caught in a nasty scheme to spy on its own workers. Teleperformance, a $6.7 billion global behemoth that handles customer service calls for Amazon, Apple, Uber, etc., saves money on overhead by making most of its 380,000 employees around the world work from their own homes. That can be a convenience for many workers, but a new corporate policy first imposed in March on thousands of its workers in Colombia is an Orwellian nightmare. Teleperformance is pressuring them to sign an eight-page addendum to their employee contracts, allowing corporate-controlled video cameras, electronic audio devices, and data collection tools to be put in their homes to monitor their actions. I work in my bedroom, one employee noted. I don't want to have a camera in my bedroom. Neither would I, and I doubt that Teleperformance's $20 million a year CEO would allow one in his mansion. Uglier yet, the privacy obliterating contract requires that even the children of employees can be spied on at home. Nonetheless, the Colombian worker signed because her supervisor said job if she refused. Of course, Teleperformance Inc. assures us that the data it collects on children is not shared elsewhere. But how do we know that? Trust us, they say. This is Jim Hightower saying, do you? You're listening to X-Ray FM. KXRY Portland at 91.1 and 107.1 FM and in Halem, Wheeler, Manzanita and Rockaway Beach at 91.7 FM. Streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. Tom will be back in a few, so do stay tuned. But first we'll check in on This Week in Labor History and another edition of Climate Connections and a little musical diversion here. A new one from Laura Jane Grace. This is Hole in My Heart. You got it on X-Ray.
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1944. That was the day that seven employees at Detroit's Dodge truck plant stopped working to protest the firing of a union brother. When five of the seven were fired for the stoppage, it sparked a wildcat strike. Another 320 workers downed their tools and left the plant. It was World War II. The Dodge truck plant had been converted into wartime production. Workers there built heavy trucks to ship to allies in China. The unions had signed on to a no-strike pledge after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt demanded labor peace to aid the war effort. Leaders of the AFL and CIO agreed to no-strike, no-lockout clauses. The CIO went even further and agreed to give up overtime pay. Most union members were not consulted on the pledge and did not vote on it. When they learned about the pledge after the fact, many workers who had just come off victorious organizing drives were in no mood to make concessions. They witnessed surging wartime profits for their employers and no cap on executive salaries while they had to deal with wage freezes and rising inflation. Many were confronted with increasingly unsafe working conditions, violations of newly won contracts, and arbitrary discipline and firings. Despite the no-strike pledge, wildcat strikes were common. During the war, there were over 14,000 strikes involving more than 6 million workers. In 1944 alone, when the workers walked out at the Detroit Dodge truck plant, there had been more strikes in auto plants than at any other time in the auto industry's history. Workers found that short, spontaneous walkouts quickly resolved their grievances, regardless of the no-strike pledge. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Sisters of the Road, a social justice organization that operates a cafe. Sisters is most known for their hot meal barter work program, but Sisters is fundamentally an experiment in radical community building. In their space, diverse communities join the common purpose of fighting for the dignity and the humanity of everyone, regardless of their social status. They do this both day to day and on a systemic level. Sisters of the Road is proud to join other local nonprofits in this year's Give Guide. More information at giveguide.org under the community category. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. As a professional mountain runner, Dakota Jones races on trails all over the world, from the Swiss Alps to the California foothills. So he and other elite runners see the effects of global warming firsthand. We're constantly in the outdoors experiencing these wild places and seeing the changes that they're undergoing. After participating in a running camp in Alaska, Jones had an idea, bringing concerned runners together to empower each other to take climate action. Slowly, I was able to put together this idea of having a running camp where every participant comes with a climate-focused problem or project to address in their community. In 2021, he launched Footprints Running Camp. Participants spend a week running together, learning about climate change, and developing climate action projects to pursue back home. For example, one former camper created a curriculum about the impacts of climate change in Colorado. Another has been documenting how black and brown women athletes are taking climate action. Jones hopes the camp provides a model for how to mobilize people around any shared interest, not just running. Whatever brings people together can be a platform for climate action. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit... 
This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're number one. Welcome to the third hour of our program. Yes, indeed, my friends, we are number one. The U.S. broke the record, and the year is not even out yet. I mean, it's just the first week of December, and we have broken the record for all time. Uh, the largest number of people killed in mass shootings in any country, any developed country anyway, anywhere in the world ever, including the United States. We broke our own record. We broke everybody else's record. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's the highest number of mass shootings in any year. According to the Gun Violence Archive, its tally for the year is 630 mass shootings. 630. We are literally the only nation on earth who traumatizes its children in public schools by requiring them to go through active shooter drills. And I can tell you, it produces trauma. And it will be a lifelong trauma. I mean, they, they have gotten real serious about this. They, they, they play these things out, they enact them, you know, run and hide and be, I, I, you know, when, when I was a kid, back when I was a kid in the 1950s going to elementary school, um, we had duck and cover. And we took it as a joke, as did our teachers. I mean, you know, the bell would ring and we'd all jump underneath our desk and put our fingers over our eyes and our thumbs over our ears so that when the, when the bomb goes off, we wouldn't become deaf and blind. We'd simply lose all our skin and be turned into a mass of molten flesh. Uh, but but at, at least we were protected, right? I mean, we all knew it was silly. I, I don't know anybody who was traumatized by duck and cover, frankly. But, you know, I've got grandkids in, in school right now, and I can tell you, these kids are, they're frightened, with good reason, because they see these shootings on television all the time. And, and you know, in the back of the 50s, I never saw, you know, America being blown up with a nuclear bomb. I mean, the whole duck and cover thing was conceptual. It wasn't real. It didn't, it didn't feel real. It still doesn't. But, you know, Uvalde, I mean, a guy walking into your school and shooting people up and walking around for an hour while the police are standing around twiddling their thumbs in terror because the, the, the bad guy has, you know, more armaments than they do or is, you know, more well prepared for whatever. It's just only in America. And why? Because the gun manufacturers decided that they were going to buy themselves a political party. This all started in the 1970s. 1973 or 74 was the year that the National Rifle Association made the transition from being a sportsman's club to being an advocacy arm of the weapons industry. And by, you know, I don't think any coincidence, uh, you know, 1976 was the year the Buckley versus Vallejo decision by the Supreme Court in which they said that giving money, you know, rich people giving money to politicians is no longer considered bribery. It's now considered free speech. And then two years later, 1978, in the first National Bank versus Bellotti decision, a decision that included the National Rifle Association. I mean, they weren't explicitly a part of the lawsuit, but, you know, they were a corporation that corporations had rights under the Constitution as persons. They had rights under the first 10 amendments of the Constitution, what we call the Bill of Rights. And that included the First Amendment's right to free speech. 
and the and the Supreme Court ruled that free speech and money are the same thing. That money is not a separate thing. Now I've never heard the you know I've got a f- couple bucks in my pocket. I've never heard them yelling at me or talking to me or anything. And if they ever did start to, I'd start to <laughs> be a little concerned. But according to five corrupt Republicans on the U.S. Supreme Court, and Clarence Thomas was the deciding vote, and this was all after he had been well massaged by Harlan Crow and other right-wing billionaires. In 2010, in Citizens United, Clarence Thomas said, yeah, yeah, we're going to double down on this. We're going we're to throw out over 100 other federal and state laws that are designed to maintain good government and keep big money out of politics. And we're just going to turn the country over to the richest interests. Whoever wants to give our politicians the most money, our politicians will dance to their tune. And that's why you will not find a Republican who is willing to talk about climate change because they're all being paid off by the fossil fuel industry. You will not find a Republican who is willing to talk about gun violence in the United States because they're all being paid off by the, by the NRA and the, and the weapons industry. Or in both cases, if they're not being paid off in a big way, they're terrified that a, a primary challenge can be brought against them and they'll be kicked out. In fact, Newt New Gingrich just doubled down on this. Uh, you know, one of the, I, I saw a promo the other day on MSNBC for Steve Kornacki. He's got a new show and he's interviewing Newt Gingrich. I'm thinking, you know, really? I mean, I wouldn't interview Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich is, is scum. He, he, was, he was arguably the worst Speaker of the House in, in my, certainly in my lifetime. He was the guy who started the whole thing of shutting the government down. He's, he's, and, he, and he, they do this promo, America's never been so divided. Well, it was you, Newt, who did this. Anyhow, uh, setting aside that rant, uh, Newt went on Fox News this week, and he was asked about uh, Mike Johnson. This was on Fox and Friends. And he was asked about Mike Johnson uh, helping to get the necessary votes to start a, an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. Now, keep in mind, the only evidence they have so far that Joe Biden has done anything worthy of impeachment is that his son repaid three $1,800 monthly loans that Joe gave to him to pay for his new truck, his Ford Rebel or whatever it was, and the $200,000 check that Jim Biden, Joe's brother, had given to Joe, which was the payback of a loan that Joe had loaned him a couple years earlier. Um, all of it above board. In fact, James Comer had a $200,000, by weird coincidence, exactly $200,000 uh, transaction with his brother that had to do with, as I recall, uh, their parents dying and settling the family estate and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, they got nothing. They got nothing. So anyhow, on Fox and Friends, they asked Newt, you know, is, he, is, is Mike Johnson going to be able to line up the votes? And what Newt said... And I think this is actually, you know, not, not to give new props, but I think this is actually true. He said, if you're a Republican, do you really want to guarantee a primary opponent by voting against looking into Biden? He noted, this doesn't impeach him. This simply gives Congress additional power to force the White House to reveal documents and force people to come forward and testify. Um, but basically, the bottom line is that he's saying that uh, the, the big club that the right-wing billionaires and the fossil fuel industry and the weapons industry and, and now, you know, the Trump industry, the Trump cult, the big weapon that they hold is not so much we're going to give you money or withhold money. 
It's, we will give money to your primary opponent and end your power. Which means that every Republican in Congress is literally confronted with a choice. Whether it's climate change, whether it's the leading cause of death in America among our children being bullets, whether it's whether or not to impeach Joe Biden for loaning his son 3,000 bucks to buy a car, uh, whatever it may be, every Republican in Congress, in the House and Senate, is faced with this choice. Do I do what's best for the country, or do I do what will keep me in power for one more election cycle? And it sure seems to me that almost without exception, they're making that latter choice. They're saying, you know, I, I am I, I'm afraid of a primary, and I'll do whatever it takes to get through the next election cycle, even if that means lying to people. Meanwhile, remember the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, uh, 300, and if I'm, I'm doing this from memory, I think it was $384 billion, something like that. Uh, a little short of $400 billion was devoted to, you know, green energy and greening America and all that kind of thing. And uh, $7.5 billion of that was to build charging stations all over the country. I mean, there's a lot of people who are thinking about buying electric cars who don't have a garage where you can easily, you know, plug your car in overnight and charge it. You don't even need, you know, a fancy charger. You can just plug it into the regular wall outlet, which is what we do, you know, with our, our Ionic 5. Um, because we have a garage, I mean, you know, but not everybody does. But increasingly, the range on these cars is hitting, you know, 250, 300, 350, and some of them 400 miles. The new Rivian uh, truck is, I think, 440 mile range. And from everything I'm reading, the battery technology is just moving by leaps and bounds. And probably within two years, you're going to start seeing five and 600 mile range on, on these uh, electric vehicles. And what's cool, by the way, you know, if you fill up the gas tank on your car, gasoline weighs 5.6 pounds per gallon. If my recollection from my days as a pilot when we had to use weight, do weight and balance calculations is still accurate. Um, so, you know, if you go from an empty tank to 20 gallons of gas, that's 20 times 5.6 or, um, you know, it's 100 and some odd pounds of weight you just added to your car, which is going to reduce your gas mileage. But if you take your electric car and charge it from, you know, empty to 100% to 300 mile range, uh, it might add a little bit of weight because in theory there's some electrons flowing into that car, but electrons have a mass that's pretty negligible. I mean, I'd, I would be surprised if it added even a gram of weight or, or even a milligram of weight to the car. So charging it doesn't, you know, reduce the mileage and all that kind of thing. So anyhow, we, were, we, we had this uh, $7.5 billion dedicated to build chargers all over the country, and that would allow people to buy a car, uh, an electric vehicle, even if they don't have a garage to charge it in, uh, be able to, get to, to, to buy an electric car and, and, uh, and, and go with it. And uh, it's, it's not happening. That's the sad news. Not one single charging station. This is two years ago. Not one single charging station has been built. Interestingly, the state that is actually at the forefront of doing this, that has got the most permits and has started the process most aggressively, is Ohio, Republican Mike DeWine's state. But uh, you know, but a lot of people drive in Ohio, and it's you know it's heavy in the auto industry. So I, I suppose that makes a certain amount of sense. But now, now that the money has not been spent, I mean, the, the goal was to build 500,000 charging stations across the United States by 2030. 
And now that a lot of that money has not been spent, over $2 billion of the $7.5 billion has even been allocated, Republicans are trying to strip it out of the next budget. And in fact, they, they succeeded in stripping it out of one piece of legislation, uh, which didn't pass. So, but that was uh, in November, House Republicans offered amendments to the Transportation Spending Bill to, to cut out this program. Representative Harriet Hagman, the Republican from Wyoming, on the floor of the House, she said, the program just doesn't work. Um, well, you know, give it a chance, would you? I'll be back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Breaking news, Tommy Tuberville is releasing his hold on some of the appointments. Uh, We'll keep you up to date on that, and I'll be back with your calls right after this. And welcome back. Bonnie in Coos Bay, Oregon. Hey, Hey, Bonnie, what's on your mind today? Hi. Um... I have a comment first and then questions. My comment is I want to tell you about a new book called Fever in the Heartland. It's about the KKK. It's by a man called Tim Egan. It's a really good book. It will it surprised me. Hmm. The, the I've the read, stuff that went on. Yeah, I've read some then. of Tim Egan's col- columns over the years, but I've never read a book by him. Um, so is it a history oh of the gosh, Klan, or is it about the contemporary Klan? It, it's um, all of it. Mm, um, mostly history. Yeah. But um, he talks about how um, Ulysses Grant knocked down the KKK back then. Yep. And there's also been a new book come out about that, how he did that. Yep. But yeah, so plan, that's my plan comment. Made I wanted to let you know about that book, Fever in the Heartland. Yep. Um, I want to know if the subject of the climate crisis came up in the recent debate, this last one the other night. Um, did it? Are you talking about the Newsom-DeSantis debate or the last Republican debate? No. Well, uh, I'm talking about Newsom-DeSantis, right. but... Yes. I didn't. I, Bonnie, um, I'm sorry. I didn't watch it. I was I was in Antarctica and uh, uh, it was on. Yes. Uh, I was in a five hour time difference, well, which is why I'm know, so a little goofy. I, I watched so. some of it. Uh-huh. I watched some of it and I don't think it came up. <laughs> I don't. And I'm 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 blown away by this. Well, Sean Hannity controlled the agenda, so that would make sense that he wouldn't bring it up. I mean, I can't say that. Oh, he didn't, I know. But. I know. But I'm I just. I, it's been left out of the the Republican debates, as far as I know. Yep. They're just nobody's mentioning it, yep. and I just think that's criminal. I agree. I yeah. absolutely agree because it's it's the fate of the fate and future of our kids and grandkids and the world. Yeah, Bonnie, thank Life you for pointing that out. Planet. That's that's yep. You're absolutely right. It's an important one. Thank you, Bonnie. MJ in Seattle. Hey, MJ, what's on your mind today? Hey, good morning. Um, I uh, want to call to talk about uh, uh, gun gun violence mm-hmm. and mass shootings in the United States. I've been a member of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America since Sandy Hook days. Wow! And so, it's, you know, it's, it, uh, if you'd told me then nothing had been would be done in all these years, um, well, and that's what's come to pass. Yeah. <laughs> and. Um, 
Yeah, we don't even have the assault mm-hmm. weapon ban back. I mean, we're backwards from where no. we were between 95 and 2005. That's right. What did, and this is one of the things I wanted to mention to you, that to guard against uh, going backwards. Um, I know one of your uh, examples of a place that's done something good regarding gun violence is Australia. Mm-hmm. And I, I met some retired military people who were sailing around the world and working at high-tech jobs while they were in ports around they were in the seattle area to work at amazon and they had their big fancy boat there and uh uh-oh i hear music that's okay you can summarize quickly (laughs) okay well it las vegas is a huge hotbed of uh, gun things put oh, in yeah. TripAdvisor, yeah, they, Las Vegas. Yeah, they have the the gun shows. The you know where they they're absolutely unregulated. They're yeah. a big deal there, and people fly in there to buy guns. You're absolutely right, MJ. I got to run, but thank you. Change starts with you. You can be calling your Democratic or Republican representatives to let them know what you think by calling 202-224-3121. It's the Capitol switchboard. It'll get you right through to them. You know, one of the grand questions that political scientists have been scratching their heads over for years in America is, why do right-wing billionaires fund anti-black history movements? Why are they, why are they pouring money into these people? Why are they funding anti-trans movements? I mean, what does this have to do with being a billionaire? Well, it turns out it has a lot to do with it, and here's why. Almost 30 million Americans lack health insurance. 37 million of us live in dire poverty. One in five of us are illiterate. A quarter of Americans suffer from a diagnosable mental illness and can't get treatment. 316 people are shot every day in America. 44% of us carry student debt. And the billionaires don't want to pay income taxes to deal with any of these problems of society. That's the real issue. If they can get us fighting with each other over black history or over trans people or kids, they win. Then we're not talking about taxing them, raising their taxes to where they should be. There's a whole rant about this over at HartmanReport.com that you can read and see all the stats and all the hot links. Check it out. Twenty-four minutes past the hour, and uh, just a, a quick story I want to share with you, and then I'll pick up your calls. Um, Moms for Liberty looks like it's just going down in flames now that uh, Bridget Ziegler, who is the co-founder of the organization down in Florida, um, and, and I believe the co-founder of the national organization, I could be wrong, but uh, I, I think that that's, you know, it all started in Florida. And uh, she did a whole lot of performances with Casey DeSantis, Ron's wife. Um, it came, it, it's come out that uh, there was a, a, a menage a trois, you know, a, a, a three-way between her and her husband and some other woman. And this is just decimating the uh, Moms for Liberty, which, of course, has you know, been designated by the Southern Poverty Law Center as an anti, uh, anti-LGBTQ uh, hate group. And the Pennsylvania chapter has just dissolved itself. Uh, they have five, uh, 285 chapters in 45 states. It did begin in Florida, yep, as I'm reading the article now. Um, and, uh, you know, they've been trying to, trying to put up people in, in, um, on school boards all across the country over and over again. But Pennsylvania, excuse me, is pulling the plug. They're going to rename it. I don't know what they'll call it. You know, Moms for Hate? Something. Anyhow, let's pick up your calls. Diane in Ann Arbor. Hey, Diane, what's up? 
Yes, hello. Um, I I would just like to say, uh, Ukraine, uh, they were promised so much. They were making arrangements to join NATO. They were yep. turned away because NATO was a bunch of cowards and wouldn't stand up to Putin with them. Uh, they were given, there was an agreement if they got rid of their nukes. I, I'm not sure of the name of the agreement. I mean, they've been basically set up by us. It was called the Budapest uh, in the Accord. Free there you go. I knew it had something to do with Hungary. Yeah. Um, and they've been basically set up by us because we promised support. We promised to back them up. We have got a dictator uh, fan, uh, mutual admiration uh, society going on around the world. These psychopaths that become dictators in different countries all over, and they're springing up all over mm-hmm. like mushrooms with this, you know, this mutual thing that they're going to run the world. Yep. And you know, Putin and Trump have a thing going back and forth yep. where he's he's uh, and it just um, it's just so sad and I feel sorry for our children because why don't they use the word dictatorship I don't understand that because if you want to get something across you you bring it with a gut punch and to me dictatorship is a much stronger word than um, authoritarian or whatever. That's just high in the sky. Yeah, that's what Trump wants and that's what Putin has. Dan, I gotta run, but thank you. Well said. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. Back with your calls on the other side of this break. Stay tuned. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is They Want to Kill Americans, the Malicious Terrorists and Deranged Ideology of the Trump Insurrection by Malcolm Nance. This is from Chapter 4. It's titled Titus's Street Enforcer's Wing. There she is. Get her ass. Alyssa Al-Azhar was running for her life. A gang of men were chasing her through the streets of Olympia, Washington, and their intent was becoming clearer and clearer with every step. They were going to beat her or rape her. Alyssa assumed it was both. Um, At this September 5th, 2021 protest in Washington's capital, the Proud Boys owned the streets. They wandered around carrying black police-style riot shields armed with two-foot-long black batons and wearing yellow masks or shirts. They claimed they were hunting Antifa in support of... an anti-vaccination protest nearby, but really they were just attacking liberals. With the city police essentially ignoring their activities, they operated with near impunity, chanting F Antifa over and over as they searched out people on the street. The Olympia Street action came eight months after the Proud Boy leadership was being dismantled in Washington, D.C. The Proud Boys led the assault on the U.S. Capitol, but Olympia is the capital of a state where the rural areas are bright red and voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. After the January 6th attack, they gained the wrath of the counterterrorism world. The FBI came down hard on the insurrectionists and arrested many of them. The government of Canada branded them a terrorist group and closed their border to members. With the media, the government, and the general public showing disdain for their reemergence in the summer of 2020 as an armed militia, they quietly stowed away their AR-15 rifles and went back to their roots. The Proud Boys started as a street gang dedicated to, quote, punching liberals in the face. 
Their mission was to reflect their brand of extremism through deed and not words. To make their point, they took to the streets of liberal and progressive cities like Seattle, Portland, and New York, and like the Nazis, they beat their political opponents on the streets with their fists. An independent journalist in Portland, Oregon, Alyssa Azar came to America as a child, a refugee from Syria. She detailed the rise of the Proud Boys and their authoritarian cultism for local and internet media. She saw them emerge from the rural eastern and southern parts of the state and organize in cities like Portland to confront Democratic Party supporting activists. She usually went to the protests and documented the fights, riots, and brutality of the police, as well as the extremists. She was well known for identifying right-wing extremists, including Patriot Prayer, Proud Boys, and Patriot Front members. This engendered risks. They knew who she was, too. At the Olympia protest, she hovered on the streets near the, where the Proud Boys had assembled. She decided to head home when she heard her name shout. There's Alyssa, get her! She turned and saw a wall of white men in the black clothes garnished with bright yellow that made up the Proud Boys uniform. She saw the man who called her name, a skinny white man carrying a multicam camouflage uh, body armor plate carrier, his black cap turned back on his head and a bright yellow mask concealing the lower part of his face. A group of men carrying batons and shields broke away and stormed after her with a fury. She turned to run as fast as she could. The three men soon chased her into a storefront and mobbed her. One grabbed her hair, another tried to pin her arms, bru uh, bruising her in the clench of his fingers. Another was smashing her with his shield. They were trying to push her onto the ground, but she fell back against a wall, terrified of what they intended to do. The man with the shield grabbed a huge tuft of her long hair and pulled it hard at the root. Another started shouting, grab her ass, grab her ass. She was sure they meant to sexually assault her now that they had her pinned to the wall. They pawed at her breasts and her buttocks. Then one pulled out a black water gun and sprayed a long stream of bear spray right into her face. They missed a direct hit on her, eyes and mouth, which would have incapacitated her for further assault. She used the spray's blast to break free and once again run for her life. She saw an open bar and ran inside. She told the staff she was being pursued and sexually assaulted and they blocked the door. As she checked herself for injuries, it became clear that the Proud Boys were going to lay siege to the bar. Over 60 of them assembled outside and demanded she come out for almost an hour. Alyssa eventually escaped and the attack was condemned by the Coalition for Women on Journalism. In journalism, the police, long suspected of being sympathetic to the Proud Boys, were nowhere to be seen and offered no comment on the matter. During the Charlottesville riots of 2018, the public was inadvertently introduced to these three wings of what would become the Trump insurgents. The plan was to bring right-wing extremists of all kinds, from white supremacists to neo-Nazis and white heritage recidivists, together in an allied force. However, their goal to unite the right fell apart in the face of public scorn. For a period, it seemed the right would disappear under a wave of derision. But in fact, the alt-right was being reborn, like an evil phoenix, into the action arm of the Trump White House. This time, it would not be organized by a rabble of neo-Nazis, but as an alliance of the most violent, extreme ultra-conservatives who adopted the radical neo-fascist beliefs of Trump's senior advisor, Steve Bannon. Titus emerged as a merger of Trump's most passionate advocates during the Black Lives protest matter, uh, protests of 2020. The book, They Want to Kill Americans, The Malicious Terrorists and Deranged Ideology of the Trump Insurgency by Malcolm Nance.
from international trade policy to immigration policy to housing. We've got all kinds of topics. The wars between Republicans and Democrats, the Republican efforts to induce fascism in the United States. A great selection of opinions will be found over at HartmanReport.com. So a lot of people are wondering, why is it in America that we can't have nice things? Why don't we have, you know, the same things every other democracy has. Every other democracy in the world has a national health care system of some form, and everybody is covered. We don't. We've got 27 million un uninsured people and over 100 million underinsured people. Why is that? Why is it that every other country in the world offers college education very inexpensively, if not for free, and for here you go to debt? Why is it that we've got our public schools crumbling and other, other countries are doing well? Why is it that we've got Medicare being taken apart by this Medicare Advantage scam and nobody will do anything about it? Well, it turns out the reason why has, it boils down to one thing, one Supreme Court decision, Citizens United, legalizing the bribery of our politicians. There's a whole rant about this over at, at uh, HartmanReport.com. Uh, I think you're, you're going to find it very, very useful. Check it out. Welcome back. 35 minutes past the hour, picking up your calls. Hey, Joan in Rochester, Minnesota. Hey, Joan, what's on your mind today? Well, I was thinking about uh, what Eisenhower said years ago about the military-industrial complex, mm -hmm. and I believe I believe that's what eventually comes to be in charge of our country. I think uh, they run the show, and the armed services, which is full of our wonderful young men are at their demand while they sit up in their seats and make decisions about where these young men will go and whether they'll live or die. And I think these young men have a lot better purpose in life than being hurt or killed or mentally affected by what they have to do when they go overseas. Right, than being I think cannon, cannon fodder. Yeah, and I think they should be given a choice. If you go into the military to serve your country, they, they could do some work for their country. They could help rebuild roads and do things in their uh, slow time. Mm -hmm. There are so many things they could do, and they could also, if I, if I were a young man, is uh, do what's this... Um, when you say you're not going to, uh, you take conscientious objectors. Mm -hmm. If we have a lot of these rejectors in the world, we wouldn't have a whole lot of soldiers doing the bidding of these rich people that sit there and run the lives and take the lives and put these young lives in danger every day of their lives. And now you can, and it slowly is leaking down into our young people where they're being affected by guns and uh, atrocities and mean things. And it's a very, very sad thing for our country. It's like when a lake clears its bottom and the scum all comes to the top. Let's hope it all, all that washes ashore and we get, can get back to living a normal life and get yeah. these men I get your metaphor, chance. Joan. It's it, the military-industrial complex in and of itself. Um, I mean, it's necessary to have some sort of a military armaments infrastructure. But the big problem is that in 1983, Ronald Reagan stopped enforcing the antitrust laws. And at that time, there were literally hundreds of defense contractors that were very competitive with each other. And our military could buy stuff at reasonable prices. 
and companies competed on price and they competed on innovation and you know we had the state-of-the-art military now we've got basically five or six companies that control the vast majority probably seventy eighty percent i don't know the exact percentage but i'm sure you can look it up uh, of all military contracting and the consequence of that is that we're paying through the nose these contractors are getting uh, you know richer than midas and the the quality of the product that they're producing has gone down we need to bring back antitrust enforcement and we need to be breaking breaking up these big military contractors joan thank you for the call well said roger in uh, indianapolis hey roger what's on your mind today good day brother hartman i hey. wanted to i wanted to shed some light uh, are you familiar with a one-man show that came out in 2014 called wrestling jerusalem no Sorry. I would highly recommend this country and everybody in this country. I would recommend you and all your listeners watch this show before you decide to jump on one side or the other. This is one the most, side or the other of the Hamas Israel thing. Exactly. Okay. This is one of the most precise, most well thought out, both sides presented in an even handed way that I've ever. I've watched it twice. That's how great it is. Yeah. I accessed it through Prime Video. Uh, it's on a thing called Freebie, and you can also look at it through YouTube. Oh, fascinating. I mean, keep in mind, just because something's on the Internet doesn't mean it's true, but I'll, I'll take your word for it, Roger, and I'll, I'll keep an eye out for it. Thank you very much for the heads up on that. Francine in Seattle. Hey, Francine, what's on your mind today? Hi, yes. Good morning, Tom. How are you? I'm well. What's up? Okay, um, about the Israel-Gaza war, it seems pretty obvious what Israel has in mind for the Palestinians. Um, as to date, there's over 16, almost 16,000 um, innocent men, women, and children dead, and of that, 6,000 are children. Yeah. And it appears that they intended to, to bomb and flatten the northern part of Gaza and forcing them to head south, and then once they herd all of these people into one small area, they're going to bomb them there. Yep. And they're going to claim they're bombing and looking for Hamas. But when you look at the videos that the IDF uh, shows, uh, all you see is that they're firing at buildings. And you don't see any uh, Hamas fighters. And no one knows if there are any Hamas fighters that they have killed. Because Israel doesn't show you anything other than they're bombing buildings. Right. Well, and I'm not sure that they're sure. I, I think they, they believe that they've killed about a thousand, but out of an estimated forty thousand. But yeah, this is. Yeah, I mean, this is why Joe Biden went over there and said, "Don't do what George Bush did." He overreacted. Uh, he did it for political purposes. He he. Uh, back in 1998, George Bush had told his biographer Mickey Herskowitz that if he became president in 2000, he was going to have a war with Iraq because being a wartime president was the best way to get reelected. In 2004, mm -hmm. that was his 2004 strategy. And Joe Biden went over to Israel and said to Netanyahu, you know, you're in big trouble politically and please do not do what George Bush did and and, you know, just declare an all out you know, massive war that's going to kill a lot of civilians. And, you know, it's going to rally the country around you over the short term. Uh, over the long term, your name will be mud, just like George W. Bush's is. But you're probably not concerned about that. And obviously, Netanyahu didn't listen to him. And now we're starting to put more and more pressure on Netanyahu and, and the Israeli government to try to be more surgical about what they're doing and be more careful and, and take their time. Um, but it doesn't seem to be working. I, I saw Herzog, the uh, Israeli pri uh, president this morning on MSNBC, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, the woman who was interviewing him, I think it was Anna Cabrera, 
uh, as I recall, she asked him, uh, so you told everybody in the south of, or in the north of Gaza to go to the south so that you could bomb the north, and now everybody's in the south and you're bombing the south. Where are these people supposed to go? And he never answered the question. And because I don't think there is an answer to the question. And I think that they're pursuing a strategy now that is actually hurting them. I mean, I consider myself a big supporter of Israel, and I think that I think Israel is hurting itself badly by the way that they're prosecuting this war. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be fighting against Hamas and that they shouldn't be doing, you know, pretty much everything they can to, to take out Hamas. But there are other ways to do it. And and you know, it doesn't have to be done instantly. And, and, and frankly, I mean, the, uh, another model that they should have considered is George Herbert Walker Bush's model for the first Gulf War, which is bring together 40 other countries, bring together the Gulf states. I mean, Hamas did this. They, they did this invasion of Israel when they did and the way they did because they wanted to blow up the peace talks that were going on between Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. and Israel. And they accomplished that. And, and, and so, you know, just like George Bush played right into bin Laden's hands, in my opinion, in many regards, right now, Netanyahu is playing right into Hamas's hands. I think it's just a terrible, terrible tragedy. Francine, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Charles in Baltimore, Maryland. Hey, hey, Charles, you want to talk about global warming? Yeah, hey, Tom. Much respect for you, my brother. Thank you. Listen, um, are there any scientists out there actually studying the effects of what uh, the global warming is doing to nature in general? Oh, yeah, all, all over the planet. I'll tell you, I was down in Antarctica last week, and the, uh, one of the scientists I was talking with said that when the penguins during the Antarctic summer, which is around Christmas time, our time, that it's now too hot for the penguins. They, they don't walk around anymore. They just lay on the ground, and they, they have their flippers out. They've got a lot of vasculature of, of small blood vessels in the underside of their flippers, and she said that they turn bright red. Um, because they're trying to cool themselves off. They're just, they, they're not designed for this kind of heat. Um, so even Antarctica is uh, being brutalized right now by global, by global warming. Yeah, it's getting strange because, I mean, I'm hearing birds singing in the morning like a spring, and it's the December, the beginning yeah. of December, and the robins are still here in Maryland. Oh my. I saw them this morning. Yeah hunting for worms and i've never seen that in almost 70 years i've yep. never seen robins in december yep. and i saw them one whole flock of them yep. yeah 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 it is getting strange and it's not a good thing charles it's it's very much not a good thing and the real tragedy is that the fossil fuel industry is still paying for lies and they're still they're still buying off uh, republican politicians it's really a tragedy charles thank you for the call greg in minneapolis hey greg what's up in your mind today well, you uh, had a caller talking about the EV uh, network and, char and you guys talked about charging stations and such. Um, so my wife is a in consulting and, and has been working with a lot of utilities in the U.S. And um, because a group of them were forming a consortium to actually figure out how to deploy a national network or at least a regional network for charging stations. Hmm. And they and they actually went and spoke with the Department of Energy about it. My wife was involved in the call. And everybody in the room from the Department of Energy was all on board with partnering with the utilities to get this done because they could do it faster and and it, and they and the utilities want it because you know they want to use that to help ramp up their you know their you know their capacity as far as generation sure. but they even had worked they even worked out stuff where they were going to have mechanisms for reservations for oh yeah they want the money that's going to the gas stations that's the bottom line right. when you when, 
And when you make a char- when you charge a car in Nevada, moving you know, for, and you you know, driving cross country from Chicago or whatever, it would actually bill it to your local utility bill. Oh, interesting. But what, what they what they came up against with the private energy is of all people in the room, everybody was on board, but one person who basically just isn't fundamentally, and it's kind of a philosophical thing, doesn't trust big business. And they felt like the people that needed to deploy these networks were the local municipalities and, mm-hmm. you know, counties and things like that, which we all kind of understand the inefficiency of government at that level, especially for big capital projects. Okay. And it, it died. Oh, that's so, unfortunate. You know, it, it, well, it is, and I think that because I, I would love to buy an EV vehicle, but I drive a lot, and I like to go cross country. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to spend three days driving, you know, you know, halfway across the country because of my char- because of the charging station lack of availability. Yeah, but I, I just thought it was very interesting in this, in, 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 insight, right? You have Republicans who want to give everything to big business, and you have, you know, and I'm I consider myself very moderate to liberal. Then you have people who are extremely liberal who just don't trust big business at all. Yeah. But we have to kind of get past that and figure out how to. Get, do the best for our country by collaborating. But yeah, there, the is, a, there is a middle on. ground here. It's typically called public-private yep. partnerships, but uh, interesting yep. anecdote. Okay. Greg, thanks for sharing that. Good talking to you. Sean in uh, Shepherdsville, Kentucky. Hey, Sean, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I wanted to share a quick story. Hang, hang on just a second, Sean. Uh, 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 Sean, am I looking at the clock right? We're going to hit a break here in 30 seconds. I, you know, Sean, I just I just realized I wasn't paying attention to my own clock. And I, uh, you know, can I put you on hold and pick you up on the other side of this uh, break we're going to hit in just a few minutes? Sure, Frank. Is that all no right problem. Okay. Uh, just hang on there, and uh, Sean will just pot you down. I'll just leave you right up on the board. Um, I, I did want to talk about the, uh, just kind of close the loop on this conversation about the EV charging stations, too. And that is that the, the, uh, uh, the money has not been spent so far. In fact, only two billion of the seven and a half billion dollars has actually been, you know, appropriated from the federal government and uh, to be given to the states uh, to do. And we really need to get moving on this because now the Republican members of Congress are saying, "Hey, you haven't spent the money; we want it back." And this is going to be part of a battle that they're going to be having uh, after the first of the year when when we get back to, you know, Congress legislating for the budget process. So keep an eye on that. I'll be back with Sean's call right after this. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's 48 minutes past the hour. Stay tuned. And welcome back. So, Sean in Shepherdsville, uh, Kentucky. Hey, Sean, th- thanks for hanging on for me. I'm, I apologize for that. What's up? Uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, I wanted to share a quick story. Um, Frank Trump, Donald Trump's father, sent a man to the Trump Castle Casino in the 80s or 90s. He sent him to that casino with a $3.3 million check. And that man arrived at the casino. He bought up $3.3 million worth of poker chips, bagged them up, and walked out of the casino with them. That's right. Which is against the law. Now, I think he came back again and bought another $150,000 worth of poker chips. Yep. And all of this was done to help Donald Trump pay interest on loans he owed yep. back then. That's true. And I, it's all and well I, documented, I actually. Oh, okay, good, good. And and I believe they were only fined $65,000 for that. Yeah, I don't know and about I that, wonder, but it wouldn't surprise me. 
Yeah, I, I read it in Google. It was a $65,000 fine for all of that. And uh, I just want to remind that since there's so much stink made about a $4,000 loan Joe Biden paid yeah. about his son. <laughs> to his son. Oh, that's a good point, Sean. That's, that's a like great $3.5 million that the Trumps did. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention Jared and Ivanka making $2 billion from their, you know, sucking up to the Saudis and $700 million while they were just running their businesses while they were in the White House. I mean, it's just... It, it has it, no shame. Yeah, they literally, that's, that's it, Sean. They have no shame. Sean, thanks a lot for the call and thanks for the information. Scott in uh, Sarasota, Florida. Hey, Scott, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thanks for mentioning the uh, disintegration of the Moms for Liberty organization. I... Uh, can't tell you how much those people are reviled the Ziegler family here in Sarasota. Do you know how that story came to light, right? Um, I, I believe he's also the chairman of the GOP in Florida, right? And, and Oh, yes, he and, is. And the woman for, who was in the right threesome. Now. Well, go ahead. You can tell the story. Well, I mean, it's just, it, it's vile, basically. They had threesomes together before, and apparently Bridget couldn't make it this time. And uh, so the, the, the woman said, you know, hey, I'm not interested because I was really in this for, for Bridget. And he decided to go on in anyway and uh, didn't work out very well for, I guess. No, she's charged with them. rape. Yeah, he hasn't been charged yet. But, yeah, those are the uh, the investigation is definitely underway. And, um, uh, yeah, they're well into it because this occurred in October. And I don't understand why the national media hasn't picked up more on this because yeah. these are Ron DeSantis' like chosen ones, you yeah. know. Well, can you and, imagine uh, if this had uh, happened uh, in the Biden family? Oh, my God. I can't or even tell Obama you, but family? I will tell you exactly. And I will tell you that Bridget Ziegler is the chair, I'm assuming she still is, of the school board here. And we would go to these meetings just to watch the disintegration of our public schools and what these, these you know, dark money elected people were doing. And she let some QAnon kook literally degrade the only gay man on the board, the only gay person on the board, for literally like five minutes without interrupting her. Hmm. Putting, it, it was just... It was humiliating for the man. And, um, oh, they're hateful I, homophobes, Scott. Just, yeah, they're horrible people. And this couldn't be any more just like, uh, just, uh, I don't even know how to put it. Yeah. My son thinks I'm, you know, a little off because I, I'm glad that they're. <laughs> I don't delight in anybody's in misfortune, spot. but, but, uh, hypocrisy, you know, yeah, there you go. Scott, I got to run, but thanks for the call. We'll be right back. Help support Progressive Radio. If you're listening to us on a commercial station, call their advertisers and let them know you're listening. If you're listening to us on Pacifica, one of our many nonprofit stations, please support them when they do their fundraising drives. Thanks for supporting Progressive Talk Radio and tag your it. So Vivek Ramaswamy, during the uh, first Republican debate, was laying out his vision for America. In And by the way, he was the number two guy in the debate, according to the Washington Post in which he was arguing that we should basically do away with all of our federal agencies. Really, uh, virtually all of them. Just, just shut them down and make them go away. 
He's not the first person to argue this. David Koch, running on the uh, Libertarian ticket in 1980 for vice president, was arguing the same thing. He had a long list of federal agencies he wanted to shut down. This is not an uncommon thing among billionaires, and Ramaswamy is a billionaire. Uh, you know, they basically want to take America back to the 1920s before we had what they call the welfare state. And if they do so, they will turn America into a failed state. They want to make America into, into something like Haiti or Libya, and that would be a disaster. There's a whole article about it that you can read all the details. It's titled, Is Vivek Ramaswamy a Different Kind of Republican Cat? At HartmanReport.com. Check it out. And welcome back. Picking up your calls here. Chuck in New Orleans. Hey, Chuck, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Thanks for taking my call, buddy. Sure. Um, so, uh, it's kind of difficult to say on national radio. I I'm an addict. I personally am an addict. Um, I started using abusing drugs and alcohol when I was 13, and I spent 27 years in active addiction until I got sober in 2015. Good on you. Now I say all that. I don't say that for an attaboy. I say all that to say this. Uh, one thing that we do in recovery, it, Republicans know absolutely nothing about is taking accountability for our actions mm. and making amends to those whom we harm. Yeah, isn't that the fifth and, step? Uh, four, uh, fourth and five is inventory. Eight and nine are our amends. Yeah, okay. Um, Thank you. And Hunter is going through the process, or has, mm. of making amends to the people who he's harmed. Right. And some of that is going to be financial amends. Mm -hmm. to his father, his, you know, uh, sister-in-law, uh, you know, all of these little monies that Comer is saying is uh, payments from foreign adversaries, you know, being split up amongst the family. Uh, anyone in recovery can see that those are financial amends. Yeah. And the fact that the Republicans are taking that and twisting it into something they want to project as vile or criminal is absolutely disgusting. It's one of the most disgusting things that I have seen them do to date, and I'm almost 50 years old. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, I'll, I'll um, bet a lot of people in recovery are seeing it the same way you are, Chuck. It hadn't occurred to me. I, I haven't had your experience, but it makes perfect sense. You know, um, and, and I... I the, the fact that most of us recover in anonymity is going is, is to make it difficult for him yeah. to prove that case. And yeah. I think they're banking on that. I think you're right. I think you're right. Chuck, I'm out of time. I'm sorry. But thank you so much for sharing that in your personal story. That was an important one. I really appreciate it. And a, and a genuine, heartfelt one. Thank you for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. That includes you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it, right? We can't do it without you. We'll have a, have a great afternoon. I'll see you. I'll catch up with you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. America's economic and political inequality has led workaday Americans to exclaim, the system is broken, let's fix it. 
But there's another version of this protest that I'm hearing more frequently these days. The system is fixed. Let's break it. That certainly applies to such rigged systems as money in politics and voter suppression, but it's also relevant to seemingly mundane matters that restrain our personal freedoms. One of the insidious fixes we need to break is the claim by brand-name corporations that we consumers must be banned by law from repairing the products they sell to us. The weak battery in your cell phone, the fuel sensor in a farmer's tractor, some gizmo in the toaster you bought, a fuse in your business's truck. You could fix all of these yourself or, with a little hassle, take the problem to a local repair shop. But no, such manufacturing powerhouses as Apple, John Deere, and Panasonic assert that only their corporate technicians are authorized to open the product, which you own, to make it work again. So you are expected to deliver it to their distant facility, wait however many days or weeks they tell you, and pay an inflated price. They've literally fixed the fix for consumer products. They impose their control by making the products as needlessly complicated as possible, then claiming that the complexity is their patented proprietary product. Thus, they say, they don't have to provide repair manuals or sell repair tools to consumers or independent shops. Gotcha. To give their closed profiteering system the force of law, the giants have deployed armies of lobbyists and lawyers to legislatures and courts, arguing that self-repair people really are scoundrels trying to circumvent safety and environmental rules. This is Jim Hightower 